right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Sally here. Don't really know what it's seven o'clock p.m. Sunday night here uh, in the Eastern Time Zone in the United States. I don't know what time my body thinks uh, it is. TC is here as well. I I assume dealing with the same things I'm dealing with here regarding jet lag. Yeah, I stopped over at the local coffee shop before the pod uh, to get caffeinated. I I was struggling at about four o'clock this afternoon. I, I did everything I possibly could to immediately try to get back on the uh, the U.S. sleep schedule. It's not working great so far. Joining us as well from the Eastern Time Zone, Mr. Neil Schuster. Hello, Neil. Good evening, gentlemen. I've, I've been here all week. Quiet week on the NLU front. Got a lot of work done with you clowns crossing the Pacific. Glad to have you back from the DMZ. Glad you had a good time. And I will say it's chilly season. Uh, my wife and I made a, uh, some chili tonight. It's getting cold. I'm starting to get a little bit of a a cold going up here that the weather's turning. So yeah, happy to be here. No, you sound, you sound great. You really, you really sound wonderful. Thank so, you. What's your chili strategy? Well, I was going to make Brunswick stew and then we decided to mix it up. So Carson got a recipe from her sister. You know, the chili had some potatoes in it, which was a surprise. Really? I haven't had chili with potato, uh, sweet potato in it, but it actually was, it was a good uh, texture mix up. So I, I was pretty happy with the, uh, with the result. I'll, if anyone's interested, I'll try to dig the recipe up. It was much more Carson making it than me, but I, I did eat it. TC and I were on the road this past week, as we mentioned, to Korea. I listened, TC, as soon as we got back, I took a look with great pride at my OGO mutant travel bag. I've had this thing. I, I thought back to it. Summer of 2017 uh, is when it was sent to me. You know, five and a half years for a golf travel bag. But in reality, with how much we travel and how much we're bringing our golf clubs, I'd say it's probably 20 to 25 years worth of travel. It has gone into this thing, and it is only just now starting to show a little bit of wear and tear to the point where I can at least start thinking about uh, shopping at OGO.com for a new golf travel bag. I know you got a lot of you, – you keep a cycle going. See, I kind of stick with one thing for a while. I know, I'm sure you got five or six different options going here. No, no, I mean, no I've, I've had my, my Alpha Convoy mid for the last probably two and a half years now, almost three years, and it's gray. I will say, get a slightly different color travel bag people don't don't just go with the standard black every time because uh nobody will ever take your travel bag if it's a different color than everybody else's or you can use stickers because Sally, i'm with you i've had the mutant for probably the exact same amount of time it is showing a little bit of wear and tear but that thing has been a quality piece of equipment it has not failed me yet i have not had any of the you know have not had to take to uh, social media to uh berate delta about a broken driver or anything like that and I would attribute that to the OGO mutant. I cannot say enough great things about the the wonderful almost six years that we've had. But in reality, it's like it's like a, it's like dog years. Really, it's closer to twenty five, uh, as we said, with how much we are on the road. You can find out about the many designs and models of the travel bags that they have at OGO.com. O-G-I-O dot com. Rory, how guys? I just got to start by saying this: How long ago does it feel like we were having major, major wedge problems with Rory, and it was just drive it down the middle and do absolutely nothing with it? The guy has been playing the best golf in the world for a year now, and he has rightfully returned to the top spot in the OWGR. I think, as predicted on this podcast, right? Uh, Last you year, guys, around I don't know. Masters. You guys- haven't really showed up for the block party in a while. So No, I felt the block party was was premature. 
It was a premature uh, block party. I don't know. I, I I would say that that I would give DJ credit. I think he was early on this on this block with me. You know, I was going to go down the, with the ship with Rory, but I think Sally, you nailed it. Like I saw those. I think three weeks ago, four weeks ago, somebody posted the wedge stats, like the difference over a year with his proximity to the hole inside, like I think 120 yards. It's it's uh, it's crazy. I mean, how how much better he's gotten on that one part of the game that everybody was saying, like if he could just learn how to hit a wedge, that would be the difference. And it seems like he did. So credit, all credit goes to Rory for, you know, fixing a problem. That's awesome. It took him a little longer than it should have. We we should acknowledge that. There were many years of watching this watching this happen for a very long period of time. But that was also part of the story of like, how can it how could it not be? How could you not be good at wedges at this point? But uh man, it's it's kind of kind of dawned on me today too. Like when COVID hit, he was top fiving pretty much every event leading up into that player. So he was the best player on the planet as of March twenty twenty. Uh, got put in the cooler for three months. When he came back, he was just not the same. And then that season just lasted forever and ever and ever. And he just couldn't really get out of that rut. And ever since, ever since things turned over, really Augusta, if you look back at it, ever since the runner-up at the Masters, he has played just awesome, awesome golf. And I know it uh, not getting it done at the old course kind of, I don't know, I say clouded a lot of views on 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 what how productive of a season it has been for him. The close calls in majors, I think, mean a lot more than just finishing T30, which is what he kind of had turned into there for a little while. Uh, and matching it with winning the Tour Championship, um, I forget where he won, won last year's CJ Cup. I think he, he won the Canadian Open this year as well. Now winning this event, it just feels very normal to watch him win golf tournaments again. And, uh, you know, longevity is something that is not a guarantee in golf. And that's kind of a little journey I've been on looking at the numbers uh, as well today. But reaction to uh, to Rory's win at Congaree. You know what, Solly? I got some concerns. He's he's only fifth in the FedEx Cup. So he's regained <laughs> the number one spot in the world, but he's fifth in the FedEx Cup. Uh, obviously, that's because he's only, this was his first event of the new season. Like, I'm going to go back and pull the audio from the Masters recap we did. Because I think I was, I think we were all pretty bullish on him. After that, and it was kind of like, hey, he's he's on the upswing. It may not happen immediately here. It may not happen over the next two to three months. But finally, it feels like Rory's best golf is ahead of him. Uh, and and even now, it feels like he's playing better golf than he did when he was on top of the world in 2012, 2013, 2014. Uh, he feels like a much more complete player. Uh, you know, before he was just hitting hitting dingers and probably hitting for low average. It feels like he's raised his, raised his OPS. Getting on base. You know, he's, taking walks. he's taking walks. He's, he's hitting to the opposite field. Now he's hitting the off speed stuff. It's impressive. I would actually rewind even farther than, uh, the masters. I think the rock bottom was after that Ryder cup last year. Yeah. And how emotional he was about, you know, how bad they got beat, how he felt like he let the team down some pretty vulnerable stuff from Rory. And then he goes out and, and wins the, was it Zozo or CJ Cup? Uh, it was CJ, right? So it was at, at Summit in in Las Vegas, and I just thought that was like an, an epic bounce back. That I don't, I don't know. I think we gave him credit for it, but looking back, it's like, man, I think that's where he kind of bottomed out. And then it wasn't, you know, he wins the CJ Cup, and he's kind of quiet in the early part of last or last season. And then you're right, like the Masters is we're going to start building some momentum. But I just remember that CJ Cup being like, wow, what a bounce back after the uh, the disappointment at the Ryder Cup. So, I mean, just a, a massive shout out to Rory because it's fun to watch. Some could argue that the CJ Cup is is the the South Korean National Open. Like, this is a big win, kind of the only big event of the fall. And uh, it's possibly even a bigger win, right? 
Well, this is a, a thing I came up with that is really catching on, and a lot of people are saying this everywhere. When you know you have the the horse for course, the people that win it at the uh, you know win it uh, the the same course every year, but the monster for sponsors. If you can win uh, the same event in two different locations, like Max Homa has done uh, with the Wells Fargo, and now uh, Roy McIlroy is officially a monster for sponsor, which you know many people are just throwing that out there now, but a lot of people forget that I came up with that because it's such a common phrase. Uh, out there in the vernacular, but I'll just want to highlight uh, Rory also finished fifth at the Wells Fargo, eighth at the PGA. He finished T5 at the U.S. Open. He won the Canadian Open, as we mentioned. He finished third at the Open. He finished T8 at BMW, won the Tour Championship, uh, T2 at the BMW PGA. He finished fourth at the Italian Open, and he finished T4 at the Alfred Dunhill Links before winning this event. It's just been a not a lot of people have beaten Rory on the golf course, and a lot of those felt like his C minus game that. Uh, you know, was a, a top five finish. And uh, it just, it, it's just, uh, it can't be emphasized enough. I know a lot of people are kind of over the, the cheesy nature of uh, how much Rory has done off the, off the course and, and, and the Rory worshiping that has gone on. But there's a good reason why the people that are closest and most familiar with the game have great appreciation for uh, the leadership role he's taken in that front. And the fact that he's playing good golf on top of that, uh, it's just kind of rehashing what we said a few weeks ago at the tour championship. It's just really remarkable. It truly is. He's he's got to be worn out, man. They they flashed also a winning percentage up on the telecast today. What ten percent win percentage over the? I think it was an age bracket. Like maybe it was under the age of thirty five. I think JT was next with like eight percent. Of course, Tiger's like twenty three percent within that same age bracket. So put some perspective on it. But yeah, you kind of you know it's easy to be up on Roy for the major coming up short in the majors. But like a ten percent win percentage is pretty heady stuff there's a great tool on data golf called pga tour career evolutions you can go to it and you can see that rory's got 23 wins in 221 career starts that's better than 10 percent winning percentage he's the only only one except for that other guy now that look that other guy i think had 57 wins in his first 221 starts which is unreal but yeah he outpaces phil he outpaces ernie ells he outpaces jordan spieth he outpaces vj singh uh justin thomas you name it he outpaces them all and you know you look back at it too and it's like spieth won like 10 or 11 or so of his first 120 starts he had about a 10 percent win percentage through his first 120 starts and that's where i come back to this longevity thing and i think back on jason day i think back on all the other dudes that traded in and out of world number one around the time that rory took over in 2012 and uh, I looked back at that 2012 OWGR, the the week that uh, Rory ascended to it for the first time in 2012. And dude, it's a it is insane what has happened to a lot of that those guys. It just is a, a rarity for somebody to reach number one in the world ten years apart from when they first did it. It's crazy. I'll say the rare time that I'll ever kind of diminish what Tiger did. Tiger was kind of playing against some plumbers and firemen there at the beginning of his career. So, you know, I'm just going to throw that out there. Joey Sindelar is not walking through that door. Exactly. Uh, well, hold on. Sorry. You did bring it up. Like the off the course stuff, you know, it's been very well documented here on, on this pod and around, you know, the uh, world of golf. But it's really something to see Rory almost call a shot. I feel like for years there, he was almost, I don't want to say adrift, but like didn't feel that mentally engaged, you know, was kind of the issue. I think we had with, was like, man, Roy, do you care? Do you not care? Like, oh, you know, life's about- Do you about care too much? Else. There was just, yeah, yeah like it, it didn't feel like he was mentally locked in. And it almost took like a, maybe an enemy or or for him to almost declare, to borrow a term from, from Rom, declare his fealty 
but I think there's something really uh, impressive, powerful, whatever you want to say to, to almost be like, you know, here, like rally, everybody rally around me, which like it or not, that's what he's done. And then also go out and, and ball out and, and, and kind of, you know, uh, back it up with his play on the course. Like I, I don't want to just breeze over that. To me, that's very, uh, that's very powerful. It's very impressive. And I think he deserves a lot of credit, you know, whether you agree with him or not, it's, it's, uh, it's very impressive. And kind of a weird start to the year too. Like I know he won uh CJ cup last year, but there were some doubts, um, you know, like he, he got third in Dubai, uh, that was the, the fifth week of the year, kind of beginning of February there. But then T10 at Genesis, T13 at API, where he was the overwhelming favorite, I think. Players, T33, misses the cut at the Texas Open. So he's, he's which which could be a national open, by the way. Uh, <laughs> very, very much, uh, you know, kind of a little bit unsteady or a little bit, you know, hey, which Rory are we going to get this year? And then, like you said, Sally, from Masters onward, it, in the midst of all this bullshit going on, he just took it to another level. And uh, I can't wait for 2023 to see what Rory does. Uh, hopefully it starts on the West Coast swing and kind of continues onward from there. Um, but yeah, it's it's super impressive because, uh, you know, the tour has been an absolute turmoil and he made his bed and fully committed to it pretty early on. So. I was going to say, Neil, to your point on, I'll, I'll take, I'll take credit for fi lighting a fire under Rory's ass as well. Cause I was really hard on him after the British open last year when he kind of downplayed like, yeah, my life's great. Like I got my family, like what? And it was kind of like, no, dude, that's like not the competitor we've like grown to really root for over the years. And, uh, he reflected back on those comments last December on the podcast with us in, uh, and I think that there was just a change in mentality of some kind of like, well, you can't just like coast through this and like use. Uh, how great your life is as a crutch to, you know, not, not fulfilling uh, your career ambitions. And man, it's just the only, the only downside to any of this is just like, man, these, these runs don't last forever. And to do it in this part of the year, when you're as far away from majors as you possibly can be just stings a little bit for him. I'm sure it just like, we, we know for a fact, he won't be the same exact play. He's going to go through some kind of fluctuation between now and the masters, right? He's not going to stay at his peak from now until then, but you can't control when you peak in golf if you could. But uh, like barring this. injury, he feels like this feels sustainable. It feels a lot more sustainable than the putter got super, super, super hot or like it's it feels like his game's about as all, like well-rounded as it's been in a really long time, if ever, right? I agree. It's not a fluky run. Like watching this final round today, the back nine, everything, even finishing bogey bogey, everything just feels under control. His speed on putts, like, you know, it just looks really, really solid. Uh, and then, God, he's just so swaggy off the tee. It's like it, Rory's back. You know what I mean? It's like, dang, man, that's just, it's just impressive golf uh, the last three to six months. Back and driving it better than he's ever driven it. Is it already a strength and it's gotten even better? Like, that's the really crazy part. Yeah, it's that just really cocky, like mega, like massive draw. You know, it's like it, it's like a it's that old fearless Rory tee shot, and you, you almost get, you know, you take it for granted. But it's like today, I was like, maybe it was the the scale like Congaree on on TV kind of if it looks very wide and vast, and you know, there's these big fairway alleys, and and so that shot tracer against that backdrop was just very impressive. So I kind of hit me of like, man, don't take this for granted. Like when Rory's moving it off the tee and, and feeling swaggy. It's really, really fun to watch. And he didn't even have his best stuff today, right? Like he kind of 
leaked oil a little bit in certain spots. Uh, I come back to, I think Rory's played a lot of golf at a hoopie and a hoopie and Congaree are pretty similar. And, and this is a style of golf that not a lot of guys on tour play very often. It's different from your weekend week out tour stuff with the, you know, the waste areas and, and, you know, some pretty wild lines off tees and, and, you know, some serious width out there and kind of hunting for angles. And, it seemed like he's he's comfortable with that style of golf. It's like, you know, it's like linksy links adjacent, but also there's some serious penalty if you miss in the wrong spots. Too. That's a really great take because I have not been to Congaree, but been to a hoopie, and that was the exact watching on TV. It was kind of like just watching the way that the sand flies up out of those fairways, watching the ball how it behaves around those greens, the sharp cut bunker edges, and the short grass around the greens, and. Uh, you know, how severe some of the slopes are once you get on them. I think a lot of the places the tour plays when you do miss some of these greens, like I think back to the drivable par four on the back nine, and it was at number 15, I think. Watching dudes trying to chip to that pin today from the left side, like you couldn't hold the green because it was so yeah. dramatic once you got on it, and that's just not something they do see every week. Yeah. It was it's a fun golf course to watch, man. I, this yeah. is the second time Congaree's hosted a tournament. They hosted the Palmetto last summer. But, man, this, this kind of golf course in this part of the world on that type of grass is meant for the fall. And that was about as good as I can remember a PGA Tour course playing. It, I don't think it's an outrageously good design. It seems like a very good design, well-designed golf course. And all the elements that we do like to see of – Look, it's not just penal rough right off the fairway. You're going to get some funky lies. You're going to get be in some spots you don't want to be in off the tee with some sandy stuff and some stray, deep, long grass that you know you may get a good lie, may not, kind of pinehursty. And I just think that makes for the most entertaining golf, watching guys try to play to the edges of the fairways and cut corners and you know play the safest line away from the water hazards and things like that was uh, just way, way, way more exciting than, hey, here's a fairway with pretty narrow and two bunkers on each side. Totally. I think it was far, far better than the last go around for the, uh, for the June event. But, um, yeah, and it's just, it's visually arresting on TV. You know, there's, there's, there's sharp lines, there's good light. There's, you know, the course just like there's shadows. It just looks cool. Right. Uh, you know, for, for how little they televised of it, you know, all week it's, it's, I'm glad it was there. Right. <laughs> That's where I'm kind of torn on the event is a Korean event and has should have been in Korea the last several years. Obviously, for other reasons, could not have been. I'm not really positive why it couldn't have been this year. It still thinks it would feel like it would have made more sense with the Zozo going back uh, to Japan as well. But it does sound like it is going back to Korea next year, potentially at Hazley Nine Bridges uh, back on the mainland. The the previous versions were at the uh, at Nine Bridges, which is on Jeju Island. Not able to really pull the same sole crowd as I, I would hope that they would pull next year. But I'm torn because this seems like a great golf course for this tournament, uh, yet at the same time, it probably does belong in Korea. I agree. I think it's... I'm stoked for it to go back to Korea. I think, you know, we saw it firsthand. The golf culture and the golf fans there are rabid. Um, you know, shit, maybe... Maybe that's the one next year that they mean that that they need to make a uh, you know a co-sanctioned event with the LPGA or the KLPGA <laughs> because that would be that would be the place to do it would be Korea yeah. right yeah that would be interesting yeah what what tournament can move to Congaree though because I feel like I feel like I liked watching PGA Tour golf course at that golf course I don't know what uh, obviously that they, they they should go for the hat trick three different sponsors three different tournaments all held at the same golf course I think the tough part about Congaree is you can't really have a full field event there i mean i think it's very difficult to even have this event there there's nowhere for a lot of guys to stay i think people have to stay in savannah and drive over 
the one that that makes the most sense would be RSM. Yeah. Um, from Sea Island, but I know you know guys love going to Sea Island, and that's an easy. That's, you know, that's kind of a tournament. So yeah, it's a, and it's a sponsor. You know, it's a sponsor. Like it's like, hey, let's bring clients here, and they stay at the Cloister and all that stuff. So, but yeah, that would be the one that sticks out to me. John Rom, a uh, really really good tournament this week. He was he was the butcher was hot and bothered today. He had he had a snap hook uh, on the ninth hole. It was going left. <laughs> he, of course, it, it, it hits a tree. Of course, it goes left. I've seen my best customers. Five drives worth of that gets spit out and mine goes left. I stand behind my product. <laughs> Butcher. Oh, God, Rom, that's good stuff. Rom's going to love going to back to Korea, though, next year uh, with the, the uh, beef over there. Yeah. You know? <laughs> He's going to feel right at home. That's right. Rom, you know, I think uh, some signs of life from Rom. I think it's been, you know, he's played better golf than probably we've even given him credit for. He just hasn't really had... Uh, the wins or even that close of finishes uh, to match it. But he kind of laid a little bit of an egg today. I was hoping you'd give Rory a little bit better uh, of a run. And I wish I could really kind of put my finger as to on, you know, why his putting has actually sneaky been good this past year. I think uh, we were pretty hard on it earlier in the year, but the numbers show out that he's he's putted actually really well. And just a weird kind of season for Rom. I can't really place it. I know he's won. He won the uh, a few weeks ago in Spain and he won the Mexican Open. Uh, two national open. I was going to say, TC, I know that gets you jacked up. He's just been kind of running off national open wins, keeping the, uh, you know, keeping the burner on. He's not really hot, but he's just kind of simmering, you know, but those are, don't, don't downplay those wins. I know those mean a lot to TC. And he finished T2 at the BMW PGA as well. So he's also kind of finishing this season, kind of going into this weird time period about as hot as he gets, uh, unfortunately for him, but good golf tournament, really good golf tournament, not great viewing windows. Let's just say it. Not great. Well, I was going to say, I, I feel like like Rory played, you know, solid. Like he won the golf tournament, but he did get he get crowned a little bit. Like, you know, Kurt Kitayama tried to mount a little bit of a charge early in the back nine. But Rom, they both just kind of gave him way too much of a cushion. Like I didn't feel like there was a lot of a lot of stress on Rory. And he was he was front running pretty hard most of the day. I was I got a little worried on eight uh, when he when he three jacked eight. It's such a tough hole. It's like 530 or 540 yards. The most visually intimidating tee shot. And then, you know, Rory just pipes one down the middle, three, 363 down the middle, and uh, misses a, you know, four and a half, five footer there. And then kind of limped in a little bit, but, um, you know, bogeys 17 and 18. But nobody else really did anything down the stretch. Like he had kind of built up that lead, and and it's kind of what you got to do. You know, he had, he had a two or three shot lead at one point. Nobody was really giving chase uh, to much to Luke Elvey's, uh, uh, you know, dismay there. I know he had, he had, he had called for Rom to take the ball and and uh, you know just spike it on Rory. Rom's not happy about this being you know Rory's tour and all that. Rom's going to assert himself. He he decidedly did not today. <laughs> I do I do. We're going to find a way to work that one in there somewhere, guys. I've got a. It, it, I'm developing irrational and I hate to even use the word hate because it's not hate. It's just a dislike. It's a, it's a total me thing. I don't like watching Kirk Kitayama play golf. It's the golf swing. It just feels like everything is going to go right. And he's trying to save it. And the, that aesthetic, I can't, I just can't do it. It just is not working for me in any way. I'm sure he's a lovely guy has absolutely nothing to do with him. I just don't like watching his style of golf. I can't do it. I just got to declare that. I think that's fair. I, I like the idea of Kurt Kitayama, but I don't need to watch him. You know, it's kind of like I mean, he, 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 I think he's almost up in the top 50, huh? 
He's played some oh, serious he's... golf. He's had uh, a lot of really good finishes. He finished what runner up at, at, yeah. at the Mexican Open. He had another runner up at the Scottish Open, I believe, this this summer as well. Seventh at the Italian Open a few weeks ago. He's he's up to forty first in the world. And he was a manipulator back in the day. He played the, yeah. the European Tour as an American to uh, boost that world ranking. Um, that that uh, you know Peter Uline and Brooks Kepka route that doesn't involve going to live. So. Um, well, yeah. I, would, I would push back a little bit, Sally. I, I, I agree with you that Kurt Kitayama's move is not attractive, right? It doesn't, it, it's not, uh, something, there's nothing sexy about his golf swing, but I, I desperately want there to be more like homegrown, creative, unique swings in golf. I think that makes it more interesting. Uh, so I have to take the bad with the good. So it, because I'm looking for a little bit of a differentiation, I appreciate Kurt Kitayama and and the yes, like truly trying to flip it at the bottom on every swing, but then worth acknowledging that like he's generating like 185 miles an hour of ball speed. Like it doesn't look like it, but he is like getting through the zone uh, with some you know with some velocity. So I think you know he deserves a uh, some credit for uh, for making it work, even though it doesn't look super pretty. Well, that's fair, and he does get it done and gets the ball in the hole. It it is pure aesthetic thing for me. It's kind of like Gary Woodland. I also just like weirdly don't like watching him play golf, and I don't really know why, but uh, just something laborious about how he how he goes about it that does not bring me pleasure. I just that's that, I that's super fair. I, I I hear what what you're saying. Like it is not pretty, but uh, I, it's a little bit like certain certain architecture, you know, like certain modern architecture. I'm like I don't really like the way that looks, but I understand that it's like. You know, it's it's good design. I get the, you know, if you walk me through the theory of it, it's like, oh no, that that definitely. Now I know why you're generating all that ball speed or whatever. But it doesn't really like appeal. I, I know what you mean. It doesn't appeal to you aesthetically. That's fair. Guys, can we talk KH Lee for a sec? Before we do that, I got to tell you about guys about one thing, which is when personal finance connects you to both your funds and the stuff that matters. That's money, and that's Cash App. KH Lee just made a bunch of cash this past week, and that is my link here, TC. And you know what else is money? Choosing your own cash tag is money. Uh, the Saudis trying to rent out the Augusta National Clubhouse with money. Uh, that's also money, which we have an interview with uh, Zach Helfand on the, uh, from the New Yorker at the end of this podcast, uh, by the way. Forgetting you move your car for Friday street cleaning and not getting a ticket. That's, that's money. Great. Excited. Yeah. About wow. Snoop like Dogg, that. Travis Scott, and Nelly performing at the Live Championship this week. That's money. Uh, Nelly the rapper or Nelly Corda? I think it's the rapper. I could double check that yeah. one, though. But Columbia losing a home game to Dartmouth this past. I believe that's homecoming game. Homecoming game, that's that's money lost in donations, I believe, but that is money. Sending, spending, saving, investing, splitting, tipping, donating, gifting, or just typing numbers all in a single finance app. That's money, and that's Cash App. It's fantastic. I use it every single day, multiple times a day, checking in on how my stocks are doing. Uh, download Cash App from the App Store or Google Play Store today and add your cash tag to the 80 million and counting using the app. Might have to update this script. I'm sure it's more than 80 million now because people have been signing up like crazy. When you use code NLU, you get a free $15 uh, plus $10 goes to Youth on Course, and that's money. So use code NLU at the Cash App, free 15 bucks and $10 goes towards Junior Golf. TC, what do you have to say about KH League? Well, first of all, on the that's money train, I, I, I need to report out to Neil. Neil, Sally gave me the the hard sell on crypto when we were at the Sky Club. <laughs> I'm sure he did. You in were Atlanta asking. on the way to the CJ. No, I was asking. I was at our, we were on our way to Korea and uh, we were in the E Sky Club and he made a very, very convincing pitch. He said, every, 
you know, all these, all these, all these uh, fluffers are getting washed out, and it's time to get in. Sure, soon. Not it sounds like, time, but like yeah, all good deals. You know, you guys just doing business in the Sky Club. That's that's true C-suite stuff. That's great. To that's hear. money. That's money. That's money. It's truly money. Uh, speaking of money, KH Lee, I just want to give him a shout out, man. It's he's thirty one years old. He's kind of a late bloomer. Like how old's Ricky? Ricky's like 30, 33, 33. Okay. So KH Lee, 31 years old, finishes solo third this week. And from a world ranking perspective, he's gone from, he was very steadily, like he kind of floated around in the, uh, one hundreds there in 2015, 2016 had a regression 2017 to 2020, uh, finishes the year 2022, 72 in the world. And then 2021, 2022, He's got two wins. He's got a solo second. He's got now a solo third to begin the year. Uh, just a lot steadier. He's cut his missed cuts down like crazy. Uh, he's up to 33rd in the world. Wow. And he's a guy that I love watching play golf. Uh, and he's done good stuff on um, on you know a variety of different golf courses too. So I think, I don't know. I just, I like, I enjoy watching this guy play golf. He's He's a flusher. He, he hits the shit out of the ball. His iron play is he's like kind of like Sungjae. Like like these Korean guys are just flushers with the irons. It's it's marvelous to watch. So I just wanted to get that out there. It does seem like there's a a, a, a especially long tail to this Presidents Cup run from this internet from these international guys. If, if dudes really producing here uh, into this fall, and it's, it's funny to hear you say that he, uh, produces on many different types of golf courses with his two wins being, of course, at the same golf course, the course that you hate. I don't disagree, but I do find that ironic. No, but like, there's like TPC Craig T Nelson or, you know, Craig James or whatever it is like terrible golf course, but like Congaree is the exact opposite. Of that. I agree. I agree. I just, right? I had to, I had to point that out. That was funny. So, uh, Tommy Fleetwood T4. You guys, you know, got to rely on me to bring it up. You guys never want to give Tommy any credit for anything. Only when Tommy backdoors is that considered a great week for you. And and you, if it was anybody, if that was Rory that had done that, you'd been he started the back door. You would have said it was it was worthless. Yeah, yeah or or Finau. This whole argument with Finau is that oh, exact yeah, situation. All of a sudden, but, the backdoor T four is great. Get yeah, out of here with exactly. that. No, the, stronger than that. Come the on. argument with Finau was never was never backdoor. It was always like, oh, Tina, like, like Finau's tied for the lead with eight to play. Like, of course he's not going to win. Like Tommy, Tommy shot 73 on Thursday, played like shit, shot 66, 66, 65. How can you ride this hard against Finau and still ride for Tommy that has not won the PGA Tour yet? I've never, I've always been the mediator on the Finau stuff. That is I've so never not been. True. That's not true. That's not true at all. True. Absolutely not true. I, I wish I could count how many times Finau has, has gassed it, which... Listen, there's there's you have there's merit with that argument, and TC has has said through the Slack channel, Solly, you're gonna apologize, Solly, you're gonna apologize for Finau. I I bet that it's over ten times that that exact quote has come through on uh, related to Finau. TC, you you do not mediate that. You're you're not that you're not. We're not doing that. We're not rewriting that. It was story. and it you was make, a, you make us end up being the bad guy when it comes to Tommy. Like we get messages from Tommy and Finno, like why do you guys think I stink? It's like we don't. We just have to check TC. You got to understand how this works. No one is rooting more for, yeah. harder for Tommy Fleetwood than us. He's a certified flusher. Uh, Aaron Wise continues to play great golf. Hindsight, he probably should have been on the Presidents Cup team. Yeah, if I cared enough about the team, I would have. I would have made a stink about that leading up to it. But well, you were complacent as hell and didn't think it mattered who was on the team. It didn't. But okay, that's fine. <laughs> uh, some signs of life from Sam Burns. 
kind of riding that, you know, post-President's Cup uh, yeah, wave. I picked him to win a little early on that call, but I, I agree with you, TC. I think there's some some signs of life, which is great. We got Ali Hodges sighting. We've got Brendan Todd, uh, four rounds in the 60s. Jason Day, T11. Look at this. Uh, look, at, look at this. He's 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 trading horse and going down the leaderboard. He, we didn't oh, even I see him. I've been seeing him, too. No, I've been seeing him doing it. I was just going to let him get to Taylor Montgomery because we got to point that one out. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then Tom, Tom Kim, yeah. T11, you know, just rock solid. Started out with the 66. Kind of a big week for him playing with the rib. I thought the ribs uh, presser when – Tom Kim asked him the question that was really, really like not in a corny way, maybe in a corny way, but I thought that was a really cool answer that he gave of, Hey, protect your time. Like, you know, Tom was kind of messing with him, snuck into the presser. Uh, I'm sure PGA tour comms team put him up to it, but, um, and, and, and Rory kind of flipped it around and said, Hey, like, uh, like gave a really, really substantive, uh, you know, insightful intellectual piece of advice and just said, Hey, protect your time. You're going to have, all sorts of sponsors, um, you know, and, and that's something that I know Rory's done a good job of over the last few years of saying no to things and saying no to a lot of money for things and and just, you know, kind of, hey, like focus on the golf first and foremost because none of this other stuff happens without the golf kind of thing. So, um, you know, good showing for him this week. He's he's continues to just keep the pedal down. Uh, Solly, Taylor Montgomery, floor is yours. Well, I was just going to say to the Rory point, like Rory, he, he literally does turn down like seven figure things that are just going to cost him a couple days time. And it's like super easy to say like, uh, you know, that for this price, I'm going to go spend this corporate day with this, with these people. And why wouldn't I do that? That makes total sense, you know, on a really granular basis, but an overall perspective of I'm on the road this much, I'm going to offer up my sponsors, these exact dates for this year. And the rest is my time. It's a blessing you have when you have a lot of money, but it is also probably contributing greatly to his success. Um, and yeah, him counting spot. He's like, I, I count five sponsors on your shirt. Just be conscious of your time. That was very, I think Tom Kim got a little sheep, a little red face to that of like, Oh shit, he's calling me out. But it was really, really good advice. Um, but yeah, Taylor Montgomery, I'm, I'm, I'm way in on this. He shot nine under day 62, uh, to finish T 13. He's put up some, some big numbies this fall. And, uh, it, it, I'm, I, again, I'm putting him on Ryder cup watch for next year. He's up to seventh in the FedEx cup. You know, a little bit of a 71 on Friday, 73 on, on Saturday. Good week. Uh, Keegan stays at first in the FedEx Cup, which is huge. highly, highly, highly concerning. A couple of things, clearing out notes from from Congaree. They could have had Rory and Rom together today if they would just get rid of this dumb thing where they have to send out the guys in the order that they came in at uh, on the Saturday because that, that would have made for a much more entertaining final round, I would have thought. It's a TV product. You got to change it. Speaking of which, TV, TV windows were a disgrace. Three hours uh, with the best players in the world. I know something. I know this is a weird thing in the calendar with how they're treating these fall events. And I know they're going up against football and probably don't want to invest too heavily in them. But, and you know, the CJ Cup ending up back in the States, getting all these players might have been a curveball thrown to these archaic TV contracts and whatnot. I'm sure there's a million excuses. But it was freaking comical to have playoff baseball on today. NFL football and the the US F1 race and they're just like all right we're going to throw it out there on TV but it's going to be horrible and a lot of commercials and not that big of a window. Uh, it is tough man when you got red zone and it's just tough. it's really like, tough. It's like man I'm on the pod tonight like this is tough to flip <laughs> off red zone. I mean great day of football. I also the only complaint I really had though was not enough Bibby Go commercials. Last year we got a, so much frozen food uh, run and I, I went today to Whole Foods, not carrying Bibigo. So you know, another 
another knock on Whole Foods. They've been kind of on my shit list lately to begin with. Costco carries them. You know, the, I, I just get a kick out of CJ, this massive conglomerate, just decided like, baby, go. That's, that's, that's what we're pushing to the golf audience, baby. Frozen foods. Let's go. So, and KH Lee was wearing a Bibby Go logo on his shirt as well. So they I, got a lot of you on. I think there should be move, more food sponsors in golf. I think it made me hungry. For, I, we just got back from Korea and I wanted Korean dumplings, you know, the whole time I'm watching that. Like, I think food associated with TV makes, uh, those are great commercials. I, I can watch. Well, them. it's funny. It almost like last year when I, when there was, we got inundated with, you know, Bibby Go ads. I was like, I've never seen anything like this. And it, I think they were very, very effective. So I completely Agree with you. Co-sign that. Another like and tennis. I always get a kick out of Berea, the pasta company, does like tennis sponsorships. Like here I am calling it out on a golf podcast I, because it sticks out. You know what I mean? You're like, wait, what? Whoa, I guess that makes sense. They're carb loading, you know, whatever. So anyway, you know, shout out to uh, CJ for for spotting that opportunity. Which also, it's not like this is a a. Um like, I mean, CJ, like this is technically like kind of an elevated event. Like it's a big purse. It's limited field. You know, it's $10.5 million. Like it's not like they're, they're paying a discount for right. a fall event here and all that. Like, you know, kind of curious to see what happens with the field for this event next year when it goes back over to Korea. Does the Zozo field get much better and then guys stay over there for two weeks or is the CJ Cup field going to really suffer? Uh, we were talking to Max about it. Max was like, dude, I get depressed every year that we don't have the CJ cup in Korea because the food is so damn good. Well, and it's also, if there's no, if there's no FedEx cup points in the fall next year, yeah. how do you do these events? I don't think we have the answer to that yet. Right. I mean, I, I, I do wonder if they may consider doing these elevated of uh, doing some elevated events in the fall that don't count towards FedEx cup that are like, all right, we're going to, we're going to, we got to put something together for you guys in the fall. And I know you guys don't want to fall behind, but how about, you get together for these two events in Japan and Korea. We take this product and market it in Asia, this enormous market that's going to be crucial to us funding the PGA Tour into the future. And why don't we check off two of those? That way, we have this issue where Rom and Rory are running into with the number of elevated events they're going to have to play next year, plus getting their European Tour starts to credit towards the Ryder Cup. I just wonder uh, if they could find a way to make that work because it it seems if you and we can talk about some of the uh, events they that were in you know leaked this week that are going to get elevated now you know there's not a lot of events that get kind of left behind that are totally screwed right it's kind of like oh shit the heritage got, got elevated like i didn't realize that there were that many events uh, you know that there weren't that many tournaments available to actually get pumped up that maybe deserve it so it feels like scottish open in the future and taking the international seems like a way I, to to address I, a lot of the issues they have yeah. Do you want to do schedule stuff now? Let's do that now. Do wanna... Sure. Might as well. Okay. So, yeah. So I, so I don't think the Scottish is actually on the table for, for even the future. Really? I don't think it's, yeah, just cause it's the kind of the co-sanctioned, uh, DP world tour event as well. But yeah, I don't know. I just, okay, yeah. can we cover that now? Because I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't understand. That seems like, again, I don't think the DP world tour is getting out great from this, from all of this, at least from a, uh, you know, a, optics point of view i think a lot of fans there are a little perturbed at you know the thought of all these events being all the elevated events being in the u.s and i thought the scottish open is an event that makes a lot of sense for a lot of the guys to play anyways and if you want to strengthen this alliance why wouldn't you want to elevate that one the week before the open championship and so 
I, I guess I, just because it's co-sanctioned, I don't know why that would not want to be one of the ones you would want to elevate. I don't know. Well, I think, well, I, I think into 2014 or sorry, 2024, it's because it's going to be a smaller field. Like they don't want to inhibit those guys from spots, right? Like they want it to be the, you know, the full field. I, from my understanding, it'll, it sounds like it'll be the, the BMW Wentworth will be kind of the UK, you know, elevated one, but with this guy, so just read off the elevated events. Sure. Okay. You have the uh, elevate the events will be elevated for 2023. Again, this means they're going to $20 million purses that all of the top players are going to play. Again, it's kind of, you know, I believe still to be determined how they're going to enforce that in terms of if you want to be PIP eligible, basically you have to play all of these events. I don't know about using the word have to, because I just don't know how, again, how enforceable all that is, but let's just assume that means that all the top players, and I don't know what number of players that is, uh, if you're qualified for that event, you will be playing that event. And those events are uh, the Waste Management Phoenix Open, the RBC Heritage, the Wells Fargo, and the Travelers. So that brings total elevated events plus majors uh, to be for the month of January. It's just the Century Tournament of Champions. For February, we have the Waste Management Phoenix Open and the Genesis and in March, we have Bay Hill players and match play, all of which were previously announced as elevated or have been elevated. Uh, April, we have, of course, the Masters, followed immediately by the Heritage the next week. May goes Wells Fargo and also the PGA. And then June is Memorial, U.S. Open, and Travelers. July is the Open. August is the playoff events, the St. Jude, BMW, and Tour Championship. And that is the 17 events that all the top players in the world not uh, from live will be playing next year. What's your reaction to this TC? First of all, I need my guys at Grupo Salinas to step up and, uh, you know, get the Mexican open uh, up there. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it seems like kind of more of the same. They're, they're trying to, you know, travelers and heritage, I guess those are, I don't know. I like both those events. They're both good, good courses. I think the Valspars and the Hondas of the world continue to, to get absolutely boned. It's also just worth noting that it was also noted in Eamon Lynch's article, the elevated events will not be the same in 2024. Uh, these events worked with a schedule that has already been announced. So basically, they, they kind of have some some anchor points already in there, figuring out how to uh, elevate events and spread them out properly. Seems like why it, it seems like a curious setup to me initially until I looked back at it and said, OK, I think that makes a lot of sense. Farmers not getting a bump. I was kind of surprised on, I guess, but. Um, the way it spreads out in the calendar seems to make sense from that regard. And so you're saying that they'll probably like Phoenix, Heritage, Wells Fargo, Travelers, those those are the floating elevated ones. Like it may be potentially Valspar and the John Deere, you know, like four four different ones in 2024. I probably wouldn't put those in with it. But yeah, it'll be it'll be some, probably some different ones in there. I, I think the big thing is just like it seems like this is all band-aided together for 23. For sure. And then 20, sure. 24 will be totally different i think all the momentum that they had after the wilmington meeting with rory and tiger uh seems to have kind of been frittered away as the tour seemingly you know got all their hands around this and everything and then you know i i think they're probably kind of between a rock and a hard place here where they want to preview some of the the changes and the transformation the evolution of the tour that's coming while also knowing that it's going to look pretty damn similar next year uh, with probably some wholesale changes coming in 24. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, overall, it's just kind of a big shrug or whatever with like most things that, you know, Monaghan and the tour have announced over the last 
couple of years. My biggest question has just come down to like what, yeah, like how do you incentivize guys to play the international events in the fall? Do you, do you just, you know, net up those purses and make them gigantic and make them kind of one-off cash grab exhibition events, but they're in, you know, they're in Japan and Korea and, you know, places like that. Maybe they borrow the live jet and they, they get them all on the plane and they take them over and, you know, exactly, exactly right. TC. I, I think it's probably just luring them over with money. And that's where it, I guess where I get a little bit excited for this is it does seem to benefit fans. It, it makes it a little bit more clear which weekends I should, if I'm a golf fan, tune in and which weekends are pretty optional, right? It, it, it that's a good development. I think, I think you are at risk of, yeah, pissing off some Valspars and some Hondas and some AT&Ts, uh, you know, that sponsor two events. Um, that I'm, I'm sure they, I would hope that they have plans in place for that starting in 2024. And this is where I think rotating some of these things in, in years in the future as well make a lot of sense so that you don't shaft the same sponsors year after year and they want to keep re-upping with you and, and blah, blah, blah. Um, so, I, I, you know, there, this is not a, a, painless system there's always going to be sacrifices um from some of the rank and file guys as well as some of the top guys are gonna to have to make schedule sacrifices speed mentioned how the dallas guys have this is a really tough break for them because it's i mean tough is very relatively speaking they're, they're throwing a whole bunch of more money at golf tournaments next year and you got to play them but if you want to play uh if you have to play all the elevated events here and you have a stretch where you go wells fargo straight into byron nelson straight into pga straight into schwab straight into the memorial and and speed talked about how he's only played five in a row once and he's you know i might be rolling in tuesday night uh to memorial because that's it's just a lot to do five weeks in a row so which i would say you know skip skip tpc craig ranch yeah it sucks tough with at&t sponsorship for speed which but like that's this is part of the deal like this is part of the new landscape that's kind of wild to me is like at&t is getting absolutely fucked again Right. I mean, like it never fails. Like they, they can't, which they got to like, get pebble elevated for 24 then. Right. Like that's gotta be the conversation they're having. But that's, but the, but I guess the issue there would be, it's a massive field, right? Cause you guys got, you, you've got guys spread over three courses because you want to maximize the fundraising for, um, you know, all the pro-am spots, uh, for the, the uh, pebble beach foundation or the Monterey Peninsula foundation or whatever. So, uh, like that one would seem like one that you can't really elevate, right? Be- unless you wanted to really upset the Apple card as far as the Pro-Am is concerned. Well, I have zero intel on this at all, but I would guess based on how this OWGR stuff is shaking out now, the new OWGR system, which really penalized, even if you have an 80-player field, you get you get penalized for that and as compared to 160 or 156 normal, normal size fields. I just don't know if it should be or will be a done deal that the elevated events are all limited field to like 60 to 80 guys or whatever it's been reported to this point. I think there are some of the of these events I think you can still do pretty massive fields for that I think these guys may want when they see how these world ranking points are going to shake out. I mean, it, but it, it, it's different. On the flip side, though, if the top guys aren't playing that many of the non-elevated events, won't, the, won't it kind of work itself out where like, you know, those – those events are, are are getting more points than they would have otherwise, but the top guys aren't playing, so it kind of evens. But that's going to, I would think, is going to kind of piss off the better players who are all the events that they're playing are getting kind of capped on 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 points because the fields are a little bit limited. 
That's what it, it's basically yeah. like every player's now performance rating counts towards the field. So essentially almost everyone you'd add from 81 to 156 would be like adding a point basically to the field, which really does add up. Um, and so, you know, I guess it doesn't, they're still going to get the most points of any of the tours. And if live guys don't really get points, it doesn't really matter too much anyways, but that's just, it's just a thought in there. So are they going to change? I mean, they could just change the rules again. <laughs> it took a while to get this change though it's not necessarily a snap of the fingers um and and this seems to be the best system they've had so far to this point i know there's been a lot of stuff shared that how much it screws over other tours but man this is just makes way more sense and i i think it's a a, a a hindrance to the pga tour that it does limit the limited the limited field events that they do have it does cap them pretty darn good especially the playoff events so um, talking about the asian events a little bit more um I would imagine that next year or in 2024, one of the elevated events is probably in the Middle East for the PGA Tour. But one thought is to maybe make the the Zozo and the CJ Cup make them like co-sanctioned, like they're maybe they're not elevated, but they count towards uh, they count towards the DP World Tour, you know, race to Dubai or whatever, and you, know, you give guys an option there. Like, all right, if you want to, you know, let's say you win one of those, or you play really well and stack it on top of some majors, and you can go to you know, Dubai and make a shitload of money, you know, it's kind of a bonus at the end of the year there, like kind of like what Hovland and Morikawa and those guys do, you know, anyway. Right. That, I mean, if I'm looking at it and they want to, ele- they want to do 20 elevated events or whatever that is like, that's a jam packed season before August. Right. So I just, yeah, I agree with you. I think that there's room to do some of that uh, kind of into the fall, but we'll see how that plays out. Should be interesting. Shall we move on to the BMW Ladies Championship? We shall. That is where TC and I were this past week it, at Oak Valley Resort in, uh, in near Wanju in Korea. We had a hell of a week that included a few days at that tournament. Um, starting at the top, Lydia Ko wins by four strokes her 18th career victory at the age of 25. Almost, She's almost 25 and a half uh, years old. Did just a little bit of digging on this today as I was jet-lagged and woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning. Career victories in both men's and women's golf by the age of uh, the Lydia Coast, the age that, uh, she currently is, which is almost 20, or, you know, 25 and a half. Tiger had 27 wins to this point uh, compared to Lydia's 18. Mickey Wright, who has the second most wins in LPGA Tour history, she had 19. Uh, Lydia's got 18. Jack Nicholas had 14 at this age. Brooke Henderson has 12. Kathy Whitworth, who has the most LPGA wins of all time, she had 12. Uh, Spieth had 11 at this age, JT nine, Rory nine, and plus four on the European tour. Phil had five wins to this point, and Annika Sorensen had three wins uh, at this age. I know Lydia has made made it uh, as as tipped people off that she may be done playing golf by the age of 30 or something like that. If she you know that maybe doesn't want to have a long career, but if she does have a lengthy career, she is well on her way to one of the great all time careers and had kind of a, a lull there for a, for a period of time, but she is back in a big way, leading the LPGA tour in strokes gain this year, leading the race to the CME and uh, is looking like the best player in the world right now. That was a ball strikers golf course. You had to, it was on the, like it, it was in the mountains. I mean, we were, I felt like I was in Eastern Tennessee, Western North Carolina, uh, Zoysia or uh, yeah, Zoysia fairways. Like very, 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 uh, you had to sweep the ball and it was tough to get any spin uh, with your irons and the greens were very firm and quite fast. Uh, It was a, you could not fake your ball around there. You had to drive it well. You had to hit your irons well. It was not a putting contest. So uh, I think as such, the leaderboard was, was 
stout. Oh, <laughs> such a good leaderboard. Yeah, Lydia Andrea yeah. Lee, who's playing some serious golf, was runner up. Who's delightful. Like she's we talked to her, you know, in Cincinnati. We talked to her this week. She's just like such a well-adjusted, just really, really like her head is screwed on straight. She's she's just she's got great personality. I I love spending time around her. Huge, very high floor as well. And Hyejin Choi and Hyojo Kim uh, finished in a tie for third also with Lilia Vu. We actually ate at Hyojo Kim's uh, parents' restaurant down the street, which is a, a, a thing I never thought I would say. As her, her dad cooked us uh, Korean barbecue on, on the grill right on the table. Uh, of course, there was very little English uh, able to be spoken between the two of us, but the one thing he was able to communicate was that Hyojo uh, was, was his daughter, which was... Uh, very cool, very cool experience. I mean, the I think part of the reason for us wanting to go on this trip as well was the understanding and kind of documenting and just getting our arms around the enormous, enormous, enormous Korean influence on the game of golf, especially the women's side. And I think this trip helped a lot of that. Just seeing the fans, seeing the support, seeing the ecosystem for women's golf. You can't flip on a TV and not. I mean, it was playing in the lounge before we left. It was playing in the hotels on two different channels. There's big controversies going on with the KLPGA, which maybe maybe we can talk about at some point. But uh, I guess it, it it's so much easier for me to have a shitload of context around a lot of these players now going forward, having done this trip. And hopefully we can share that on the show and uh, had that kind of somewhat of that influence trickle down to our to our audience as well. But I, that's a major feeling I had walking away from this week. Yeah. Uh, Hujo Kim, uh, she, she, she also has a, a whole simulator set up with multiple. Like, it's a whole complex. Yeah. yeah, screen golf. She's got the steakhouse and then they have a bakery and coffee shop down the street uh, you know, right next door. That's uh, I think I ate an entire cow on the trip. You ate so much beef. <laughs> It was, I it just, I, I could eat Korean food all day. It was just incredible. Solly, shout out to you for, for really widening your, your uh, horizons. You were extremely adventurous on the eating front, uh, more so than, than in previous trips that I've been with you on. So you've, you've truly opened up your heart to Korean food. I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, it was like, I did I actually, yeah. I've been there. I was there five years ago and I, I tried everything then. And I, I had even more appreciation for it this time around, but I mean, come on, if you're going to go to these places, you got to try the food. You get, if they put it in front of you, you got to try it. So we'll have a big, big video coming out, uh, probably in the coming weeks about kind of kind of documenting our entire trip through the country. We spent about four, four days in Seoul on the front end. The driving ranges there are crazy. The amount of screen golf, the just the Korean fashion, golf fashion, it's wild. It's staggering how how many uh, how many people you see wearing just really like it's it's kind of like uh, ski or hiking apparel here in the states where it's it's kind of crossed over to like streetwear a little bit. Uh, that's what golf apparel's done. So I, I think they have a Malbon licensing uh, company there that is just With the whole country. Yeah, the entire like maybe ten percent of the entire country is wearing um, um, Malbon streetwear. You've got uh, PXG, Huge. ton of people wearing PXG stuff, uh, just PXG apparel. You've got uh, honestly the answer to of, the question of how they can afford so many commercials on the Golf Channel. That I don't need to ask that ever again. I, I totally understand where all their money is coming from. It's coming from Korea. Listen up, sweetheart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the pro am was uh, so everybody. Uh, straps their bag to a, a big you know four four or five seat golf cart all four bags are on the back all sorts of gold plated zexio stuff and all you know all sorts of wild wild you know clubs out there neil they've got these little things that that um they 
they attach to their T so their T doesn't fly away. Like a string to their belt? Like a little weight on the T that's kind of on a string. And so if your T does fly away, you can identify and find it right away. Just all these like little little style flares. They wear, like a lot of them wear their rangefinders on their belts that have like a styled uh, carrying case for it or like little like attachments onto their bag of, um, you know, I, I feel like you could really, a TC, I'm surprised you didn't do more shopping on the flare game. There is just a whole element of, of I, I, I don't have a better word for it than flare that, that the Koreans uh, put on the game of golf that I think was, it was quite enjoyable to see. I'm going to go back and just go shopping. I'm just going to take a shopping trip, go back to one of the department stores. Department stores have a whole floor of, of golf apparel. Uh, yeah, the, the, um, the range finder on the belt move is, is, is sick. Uh, no, I, so, I'm kind of I'm into that as well, like sheepishly. Like are the fans rowdy? Are they loud? Are they more reserved? Like at the tournament, was it, was it packed? Like I just want to understand how the, the, the vibe was at the tournament. They go out and follow their favorite player for all 18 holes. I love that. Like they don't mess around. They are not sitting in a certain location. They are out there. And this was like the biggest walk I've ever seen for a professional. I golf. think I saw six <laughs> holes. Like it was, I, I just had no desire to walk the course because of how big of a walk it was. And there's these 50, 60 year old women in these fan clubs, following a lot of the Korean players, walking every step of the way, going nuts. Um, yeah, we, the, one of the main reasons we wanted to go as well to, to, was to learn about and check out these, these fan clubs and understand like how famous the Korean players are in this country. And the first morning of the tournament on Thursday, I stumbled onto Sung Young Park's fan club and she's a multiple time major champion, but has had a tough go of these last couple of years. And, you know, she doesn't exactly exude a lot of personality on the golf course. So I, I, I was surprised to see how big of a fan club she had, how enthusiastic and how friendly of a fan club she had. I put the camera on them. They just started waving. A bunch of like three different people came up to me and started giving me treats like Korean uh, rice cakes or candy or walnuts or something like that with little stickers on them. Uh, they all had hats on that, you know, said I heart Sun Yun Park and all this and uh, just going absolutely ape shit whenever she made a birdie and seeing it made me like I was super invested in her round because I was following them around and like rooting for birdies. I was like, man, how cool would it be if golf had actual like if you were a fan of like Rory, but not Spieth. Like you root for Rory. Like you have the one guy that you go to the tournament and root for. Uh, and like hearing those roars around a tournament rather than just cheering for everyone. That that's that seems super interesting to me after having seen that. Yeah, it was uh Sally, you are you're not approved yet to be a part know, of the fan club. No. I know they invited you, but I, th I think I think she has like eight thousand people in the fan club. They pay money. It's called the Namdala fan club. She she came and took a picture with them afterwards. Uh, they they had to be very quiet during the picture. It was the whole thing was uh, like I felt like we were just scratching the surface on Korean culture and Korean golf culture. But I'm 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 way 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 intrigued and just Korea in general. Like there, it seems like there's like nine companies that that own everything. These uh, Chables, they're like these family-run companies, of which Neil CJ CJ is actually affiliated or used to be affiliated with the Samsung Group. Okay, as well. And then, you know, all these executives, they all go to prison. It's like a, a rite of passage to, to go to federal prison for, you know, all sorts of financial crimes because it means that you're looking out for the shareholders. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. Um, very, very. And soul. I was just going to say on the golf front, there was, there's an element to both in the golf that we played and the golf that we watched in the Pro-Am and the tournament golf. So like golf is relatively new in Korea and it is clearly like come from, the English influence on it. So there's words that are in the Korean language, but they're just English words. 
Yet, so like uh, at the you basically, if you get it airborne, almost everyone in the group, like enthusiastically, is like, oh, Kashaw, Shaw. And then it becomes like an anthem for the group. So I, I got super caught up in it. TC, I got sick of me saying it basically like 85 times a day. But somebody hits a ball and like everyone around, it's like, oh, Shaw, Shaw. Like it, it greatly it contributed to my enjoyment of like and being involved in other people's shots, even when we were playing it. And that was a one of my big takeaways from it. Now I hear it when I watch it on TV. Uh, of everyone like chanting that when the ball gets airborne, it's it's really really fun. Eagle chance, eagle, eagle chance. If you, yeah, you hit the because I think that's like the screen golf places will like say some of this stuff back to you or like nice birdie and uh, like the emphasis they put on it was super. It just was joyous. It it, it was uh, I don't know. I just love going to places where things are done very differently, and Korea was no exception to that. It's. Uh, you know, it's just kind of a it's kind of a, a bit of a blind spot. You know, it's such a like I said, it's such a big part of the golf world uh, that it was it was great to to be able to enjoy it in person. The metal cups. It makes you want to hit cups. Randy would love it because it's it is so uh, rewarding to finish out the hole and hit cups and hear that um, ding ding very loud on TV. Yes. Uh, tough week for Jin Young Ko. Yep, she withdrew with a wrist injury. Yeah, she's struggling. Yeah, not not good on that front. But the rest of the top ten, I mean, Atia Titikun had a chance to get to number one in the world. She had a tough a final round seventy four, but to finish solo six. But she's nineteen years old and is knocking down the door, of being the number one player in the world. Kind of a, been a quiet uh, story on the LPGA tour this year. And rounding out the rest of the top ten, Arya Jutanagarn, Yuka Sasso, Lynn Grant, Danielle Kang, Hannah Green, Allison Lee, Yan Hong, and Minsol Kim, the amateur. Uh, who looks like the next coming. Uh, she finished uh, tied for 10th. She had a, a tough final round 73 because she got out to a blistering start with a 64. But um, she's uh, an amateur finish in the top 10 um, from Korea there. It was was very interesting. Yeah, I think big, big finish for Lynn Grant. I know she's trying to get her, her you know, LPGA tour card locked up for next year without playing in the States, uh, which is interesting. We'll see if she can... Uh, get that done. I, they, the the uh, ladies, the 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 Taiwanese event got got canceled, so they've got a week off in between Korea and Japan. They go to the uh, Toto in Japan. Uh, it's the week of the th- the thirty first, I believe. So, last thing I guess on on uh, Korea is just yeah, Sally. I, I think we may have to have a trap draw special investigation on the uh, JTBC SBS. KLPGA, LPGA fiasco. Uh, Neil, they were they were having a hearing, like a congressional hearing, uh, on TV. JTBC was had an entire like two hour special devoted to it. Cody was 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 translating it all for us via his app. It was wild. There was all sorts of the I guess the KLPGA, uh, the the president or the commissioner just resigned. Um, she was getting there was all sorts of malfeasance going on allegedly. She was getting bribed with, uh, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, yeah, house uh, or or apartment in Seoul. A lot of things going on. I guess the the KLPGA, there was all sorts of um, like, you know, SBS came in with a lower bid than JTBC, which is like the big, like there's like four golf channels in Korea, like amateur men's golf that like are 15 handicaps that play at night. And you can just turn it on and like, watch them play. it's incredible it's golf is so it's crazy big. it's so so big so yeah we'll uh we'll have to look a little deeper into that one um i want to get to to this before we get any further um played some golf while we were there played very very poorly it's time 
Fall is here. It's time for me to get back to practicing, and I'm hoping to play my best golf with the Rapsodo Mobile Launch Monitor, the number one rated personal launch monitor on the market today. It features incredibly precise measurements, remarkable accuracy, data-rich visuals, and new performance combines. It is the mobile launch monitor to help the grinders, the range rats, the golf junkies get better by delivering more insights and structure to every practice session. It's got Doppler radar that pairs up with your iPhone or iPad, and it ensures that every golf ball is tracked, and it's incredibly accurate. It gives you a great map of where all of your shots went. Uh, I don't need a map to tell me they're going short and left and short and right right now. Nothing is nothing's going straight at all. My swing path's way off. We got to get that straightened out. But pro level data metrics give you measurable and actionable feedback to make practice sessions smarter. Again, I, as I mentioned, these perfor- performance combines are incredible, and those are for the MLM premium subscribers. So practice with a purpose every time you hit the range. Better practice means better scores and better golf. So get the launch monitor every golfer needs. The MLM from Rapsodo, the official launch monitor of No Laying Up. Rapsoto.com slash NLU, promo code NLU for $100 off the MLM. They're also offering a $30 off bundle for the MLM and their premium subscription. So you can stack it and get up to $130 off the Rapsoto at Rapsoto.com slash NLU, promo code NLU. Solly, I bought a net I, I hear for the backyard. It's time, to go, it's time for you to start grinding in the backyard, huh? I'm going to start, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think the uh, Rapsoto, they've got the MLM net feature as well, so you can kind of choose whether you're indoor, outdoor, whatever. But, uh, yeah, I'm. you guys are in trouble in 2023. TC's coming. Um, I want to. I do want to issue one apology. We got a question uh, from P. Scrolls. Could you please apologize to the bullet? Uh, I will do that at the uh, DP World Tour event in Mallorca today. He had a three-shot lead with three holes to go. And I believe he finished two or three shots out of the playoff. It was uh, yeah. a tough, tough finish. You, you early, you early tough. called him, Sally. I mean, he was looking great. He was aboard on 16. He, he had a downhill par three, hits a nice iron to about 30 feet. And I was like, okay. Now, that he could that things could have gone wrong there. Of course, he three-putted that. Pipes won OB on 17. Bogey's 18. And uh, Yannick Paul, uh, also known as Paul Yannick, um, won, and won, uh, won that event. But I apologize to the bullet because that was a very tough finish. Walked off the 18th green smiling like we know he would. Uh, but that was that was a heartbreaking little finish. Yannick Paul, pride of... Uh, the Colorado Buffaloes. Is he really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, big hitter. Um, you know, potentially on on the Ryder Cup team, right? Oh, if he keeps goodness. this up. Uh, anytime I see Yannick Paul, I just think of the Paul, Jake Paul, and Logan Paul. <laughs> He's going to live. <laughs> All the Paul brothers are going to live. Anything else you guys want to get into before we flip it over to our interview with Zach Helfand? Anything else? I'm trying to think anything else that happened in the golf world this week. My guy Taiga, the, the uh, Japanese player, just continues to stunt on people. Uh, so he's he's coming. So watch out. We'll, we'll keep an eye out on that. Uh, we are going to wrap it around here because it is bedtime for me. It is 8.15, and I, I felt the wave since about 3 p.m. today and uh, going to try to get this get this back on a, a relatively normal schedule. But as mentioned at the, uh, earlier on, we have an interview. Hopefully, people got a chance to read his article in The New Yorker, which is uh, from Zach Helfand. We talk a lot of live stuff. We've isolated all the live talk for this week to this part of the conversation. Um, so if you want to hear a lot more about an outsider's perspective on everything going on in the world of golf, I had a blast talking with him this morning and uh, thought he had some great insights. Put me in my place on a couple things. Uh, agreed with me on a few things, but it was a, a nice little uh, nice little back and forth. I hope he'll stick around and listen to it. Guys, I, I got to go watch Sunday Night Football. My guy, the Clapper. Coach. Uh, Coach Dungy. Chris Sims. 
Maria, the whole gang. Flo- Neil, Neil, Neil's guy, Florio. I hope we get a good slide in from Collinsworth tonight. We haven't gotten a good slide in in a, in a couple weeks. So I'm, I'm, uh, I don't know. I may have missed it already. It's, it's 8.15. We'll see. I've been waiting all day for Sunday night. I'm going to go see my wife for the first time in like 10 days. So, uh, gentlemen, thank you for a, a wonderful recap. We'll be back, of course, next week to recap the Butterfield and the Live Championship. God, the Live did pick some freaking good events to go up against. <laughs> um, but thank you all for tuning in. We'll see you back here next week, and we'll get to Zach Helfand here. Cheers. Good shot. Shot. TC Vision Fund is back, baby. His article in the New Yorker is called Will the Saudis and Donald Trump Save Golf or Wreck It? His name is Zach Helfand. Zach, what made you want to write this story and how long have you been working on it? Uh, it's been probably about two and a half months on and off. It was, this wasn't the only thing I was working on for two and a half months, but over the summer and then into into the early fall now. The, the thing that interested me was, I, I think it's this relatively unimportant thing. You know, it's it's just golf. We like it. We like watching. We like playing. But at the end of the day, it's, it's not that important. But it, it touched on all of these other really interesting topics, the culture wars and identity politics wars. There is the geopolitics with the Saudis. There's this big question that I think uh, everyone who thinks about live kind of thinks about is is how much money would it take for you to to sell out if you consider it selling out? So it was this little thing that was you know kind of amusing in certain ways uh, that touched on a lot of bigger things and, and also just the fact that this seemed like one of the rare times when a lot of professional athletes were kind of just saying what they thought. Uh, which you usually don't see. I think because this is so personal to everyone and so important to everyone, this is their livelihood and this is their dream. People were, were really kind of letting rip in a way in a way that you don't often see. I mean, Phil Mickelson started it off with with scary motherfuckers, and I think from there, kind of the dam broke. And uh, everyone uh, that I talked to was really very candid in a way that you don't usually get with professional athletes. Uh, sometimes you know they want to do it anonymously, and sometimes not. It was fascinating to me as one of these rare instances when you could actually hear exactly what people were thinking. It's a long article. It's detailed. I think the audio version of it's 43 minutes long. So this is an impossible task. I'm going to ask you here to to summarize it. But I I do want to know like what you think the story is. You've touched on some of that just just now there. But if you were to summarize what the, the story is, I think a golf fan's perspective on it might be a different answer than what you might bring. So I'm wondering if you have an answer to that question. So I was writing this for, I was hoping that it would be interesting to golf fans, but also it's the New Yorker. So there's going to be a lot of people who are just general interest magazine readers who are maybe not golf fans or don't know what's going on at all. Uh, So there's a lot of those people that I was explaining this to within the magazine when they're asking what I was working on. Um, And and the way I summarized it for them was essentially the, the Saudis have created this new golf league. Uh, and they're spending tons and tons of money to, you know, $200 million to Phil Mickelson. Uh, and it's kind of cleaved the golf world into these two warring camps. Uh, they're all really pissed at each other. And it's kind of chaos right now. And what I had assumed was the case uh, when I had started this was that the Saudis were doing this for uh, sports washing. You know, the, 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 this was the dominant narrative that the Saudis wanted to launder MBS's reputation after the killing of Jamal Khashoggi and the war in Yemen uh, and other human rights issues that they were using golf to kind of launder his reputation. And what I found out, the thing that's probably surprised me most, and that I think if there's one thing that the story is about that's maybe new, it's what 
it is the Saudis actually want. And, and this is the thing that surprised me. I, I think what they want is they're in this kind of low-grade uh, rivalry with uh, Dubai, basically. Uh, the Saudis are trying to diversify their economy. They're trying to wean themselves from oil because they see the end uh, of the world in which oil is the dominant economic thing. Uh, and they're trying very quickly to diversify their economy. And they want to keep young Saudis uh, in the country with jobs and with things to do. They want to attract wealthy Western businessmen, tourists, businessmen. Uh, and they're trying to peel off all these people who normally go to Dubai. If you go to the Middle East, they want to bring them to, to Saudi. One of the things that they're using as a lure is golf. Golf is kind of the billboard for the new diversified Saudi economy. And I also think they think they can make money on this, which, uh, you know, maybe we could get into. I, I think it, a lot of people are dubious of that, but I think that's that's the Saudis' uh, main goal. So the story is, is basically about that and also kind of uh, the big picture, kind of what's going on in the golf world. Uh, if, if there's one word to summarize it, I think it's, it's pettiness. Uh, is you know, the, the kind of warring pettiness on both sides, which is what attracted me to it because it's, you know, it's kind of fun to, to watch. Well, as someone that has used the word sports washing uh, a lot in this, I think I'm going to kind of try to uh, try to try to, uh, you know, flip this back into supporting my opinion on this, basically, in that I, I've read what your, the quotes. Obviously, I read the article, Joseph Westfall, the U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia from 2014 to 2017, said this idea that this is uh, sports washing is completely ridiculous. I still struggle with that concept of it, because based on what you described, I feel like that still falls under the bucket of sports washing, right? Of, you know, they want to attract wealthy businessmen and, you know, golf being a, a thing that they're doing in this in this pie to kind of launder their reputation in some way, normalize their actions in business. I would consider that falling under under sports washing. And, you, you know, we had the Graham McDowell say that the, the Khashoggi situation was regrettable and then immediately followed that with if Saudi Arabia wanted to use the game of golf as a way for them to get to where they want to be, I think we're proud to help them on that journey. To me, that defines sports washing here, right? Because I think there's an article, you, or a part in the article you explore golf tourism kind of being an end game for them there. But I still just struggled with this concept that they're going to see a return on this investment that uh, that exceeds kind of what they're trying to accomplish on the, the – maybe just sports washing is a too all-encompassing of a word. I'm wondering what your reaction is to that. Yeah, I think that's I think that's totally fair. Uh, first of all, that McDowell quote is just so good. It's incredible. Like that's – like, Dude, it just summer. Like, literally, I tweeted that out immediately. Like, dude, this is the definition of sports watching right here. Yeah. So I, I think uh, the uh, sports watching, as people had initially conceived it, or as it was initially portrayed with, uh, as it pertained to live, uh, was more that MBS personally wanted to improve his image with Western elites. That was what he was using live to accomplish. Um, and I don't think that's true. I think if you talk with, you know, the U.S. ambassador or a guy like David Shanker, who is running uh, Middle East policy for the U.S. for a few years um, until very recently, they, they'll tell you that he's he's not that naive, that he he MBS has basically given up on trying to improve his reputation among Western elites because he thinks it's just a losing game. But I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think this is a term, a, a form of sports washing. Uh, maybe a little bit different than a lot of people had initially conceived it. Um, I think MBS knows that he, he actually might take a reputational hit from this. And maybe Saudi Arabia, it, generally in you know, terms of human rights, you know, people are talking about 9-11 and Saudi's involvement uh, in that in a way that nobody has been for a long time. So I, I think they're willing to take that reputational hit if it improves their 
economic interests. I think a very strong argument could be made that it's a form of sports washing, just a different form of sports washing. Um, and one of the points that I made in the piece was that this is a, kind of a more familiar form of sports washing. Golf in particular uh, has been used very successfully uh, as a way to kind of make guys who are maybe not the most reputable. Uh, you know, golf has a long history of racism and exclusionary, exclusionary policies and all that. But because uh, I guess maybe honor systems or just the type of people who are playing it, we've been able to turn this into like, these are like the pinnacle of sportsmen. You know, these are these are the top gentlemen. These guys have integrity and they're pillars of their community. Um, and I think that's probably because of the way golf is played. Uh, because, you, you know, for a long time, you've had to call your own penalties and and, and you've had to keep your own score. Uh, so I, I think one of the points that I was making in the piece was that if this is a form of sports washing, it's one that we might recognize a little bit more. It's it's turning these guys who are maybe not the most reputable into these really, you know, strong marketing vehicles uh, in order to enable corporations to sell Rolexes or whatever it might be. Well, that's the thing is, you know, you there's so many offshoots of this whole topic, right? But one of them being that golf golf survives with not that great of viewership numbers because of the fact that it's got the right viewers in terms of corporate America, in terms of a place where companies feel very safe spending their money on the class acts tour, as we've been calling the PGA tour for a long time. They've done a great job at marketing their players at class acts. Does that make it pretty boring for fans at times? Absolutely. But uh, it is kind of like the, a, you know, a very safe place for corporate America to spend money. And you kind of dive into that too, with some interviews you did at the tour championship in terms of corporate executives talking about, why they're sponsoring the PGA Tour and have no interest in live and what interests of corporate America are. And I think that kind of helps tell the story, too, of how far away uh, live is in accomplishing some of the things that I think they want to accomplish. I think they're trying to do two different things, and that's maybe hurting them a little bit. Uh, some of the people that I talked to speculated that they're getting some of these guys that uh, are are edgier, you know, the, the DeChambeau's, the, the guys that tend to polarize, because they're trying to be like professional wrestling. You know, everyone loves to hate the heel. And I, I think maybe there's some, some truth in that. Uh, these guys move the needle and Liv is trying to go after those guys that move the needle, whether they move the needle in a very positive way uh, or, or in a more negative way. But I think they also need corporate sponsors. Uh, they need some revenue streams. They're not getting it right now through TV rights because it seems like if, if this reporting pans out that they're going to have to pay Fox for the rights to air their product on TV. Uh, so I, I think they are trying to kind of accomplish the two different things. Uh, they're trying to go away from, uh, you know, the class act tour model, uh, but that's been very lucrative for the tour. And uh, it's it, so far, they haven't really been able to get any of those corporate America sponsors to sign on. Do you think they actually do need to turn a profit? Do need to see a return on this? Or in my opinion, I, I feel I view this as a posturing move. To if, you know, if you say out loud, we're not trying to make money off this, it becomes very obvious about the sports washing angle of this, right? And and how it's you know I, I struggle with how they're going to make this make business sense. So I want I want to ask somebody from from outside the ish of the golf world to say like. Do you do you see where I'm coming from in terms of I, I don't know if they do plan to see a return on this because I, I feel like they just keep saying this and you know the PIF is expecting a 15% return on investments and all these things and I, I if you're doing the math on this I'm struggling to see how this thing's going to make that kind of return. I am too, uh, at least from a traditional profit and loss standpoint. I, right. I think they may be looking at it from a broader perspective. 
Um, you know, they might be factoring in the the marketing gains that you get from this. Also, they they, they are interested in getting young people in Saudi Arabia active. Um, so there are some more intangible benefits. Uh, if there's a golf boom in the country and lots of people are playing or lots of people are working on the courses or lots of people are visiting, that helps offset some of the losses. I do think they are hoping to make a profit off of this. I, I think a lot of people are skeptical of this. But when you talk to the people who who run the tour, uh, I do think they hope to make money. And 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 they're long-term investors, so I think they're they're okay with losing money in the short term. Um, but I, I the 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 sovereign wealth fund is is they have these really lofty ambitions. Uh, some people might think they have overly optimistic ambitions. Uh, a good example of that is is Neom, this giant city that's. $500 billion that they're building from scratch on the Red Sea. MBS wanted to have like an artificial moon uh, and glow in the dark sand. And there's just like, you know, some things that a lot of people would consider ridiculous. Which is ridiculous. It's going to be the height of the Empire State Building and 75 miles wide. This uh, this city, like it is very, very, very ridiculous. It is. They want to put like commuting lanes at canals to like swim commute. It's it's incredible. So maybe they are overly optimistic, but I do think they are at least hoping to make some money. I don't know that they need to make money, as as you say, because you know there are these other ancillary benefits, things that people would consider sports washing benefits. But I do think they need to make some money. You know, I don't think they're hoping to just light two billion dollars on fire. I think they are hoping, and we're expecting. Uh, to get some return. They are thinking they'll do that by selling off these franchise rights and selling them off like any other sports team. And they're hoping they'll make a lot of money off of that. But I think they need some money coming in to get money coming back to them. You know, people aren't going to pay a billion dollars for a four person golf team uh, if there is no revenue stream at all other than a, you know a little bit of ticket sales and some merch uh is it going to be need to be a little bit more than that so sponsors tv rights all that's going to have to be part of it i think and that's where i think rory made the point in the article too of saying like eventually like it, the, obviously the finances don't make any sense there's twenty five thousand people watching this thing on youtube and the purse is 25 million dollars and the welcoming parties cost allegedly between three and five million dollars when they put these things together and things like that and so if you start trying to translate the viewership into the value of you know a value of these franchises like that's what it just doesn't it doesn't make sense and that's where it's like kind of i've made the point of where i i do feel bad for the the tours in general for having to try to compete in a totally different marketplace than these guys like their tour has to make business sense both dp world tour pga tour all the all the tours have to make business sense and this doesn't so how do you how do you really compete with that but you introduced us to a, to a character in this that uh we haven't really heard a lot from uh majid al soror but i'm wondering if you can kind of back up to uh, explaining, I hate to say, a whole top-down aspect of how it, how the public investment fund works, how MBS works, how you know. I, I again, I can't believe these are topics that I have to try to explain on, on a golf podcast. Uh, but I think it is important to kind of uh, understanding who it is that we're going to be talking about here shortly. But can you? I'm wondering if you can give us the ba that background. Yeah, it's you know we're talking golf, and then let's back up and do the 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 sovereign wealth fund of the big oil producing monarchical Middle East country. But to do that, uh, let's I'll give kind of the org chart. So um, there's the king, uh, who is MBS's father. He is uh, older and has delegated a lot of his responsibilities to MBS, who's the crown prince. Um, so when the king dies, MBS will be the king and have basically absolute control over the country, uh, which he 
essentially exercises now. He uses the sovereign wealth fund, uh, which is this $600 billion that will probably grow to a few trillion dollars within the next couple of years, pot of money that they use to invest uh, in things that they hope will build the country and make money for the country. Before MBS took power, the sovereign wealth fund wasn't much of a big player, but he turned it into this big vehicle to get his programs through and to kind of wield power. Um, he appointed as the head of uh, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, uh, a guy named Yasser Al-Rumayan. He's a former banker. He is also the chairman of Aramco, uh, the big oil company, uh, state oil company. Uh, Rumayan uh, is known as being someone who, as, as most people are in Saudi Arabia, is, is you know defers to, to the crown prince, defers to MBS, um, kind of do what he says, but maybe to a little bit of a larger degree than even the, the other functionaries in the government. So the, the, the wealth fund invests in things like Neom, the you know the city. That's one of their big investments. They call them giga projects. They have these you know these big big swings. They also invested in Uber. They invested in an electric car company. They're trying to build a coffee industry within Saudi Arabia. It's it's kind of you know it's a very wide array of investments. One of their investments is Live, and the guy who runs. Live essentially for Rumayan is 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 Majid Al Sorer, um, who is the he he leads the Saudi Golf Federation, uh, another thing called Golf Saudi, which is closely related, and he's basically in charge of all golf stuff uh, within the country. Um, so those are kind of the three. That's that's the org chart. Is MBS uh, at the top, Al Rumayan, who's within the inner circle of MBS, um, and then there's Majid Al Sorer, who's a high school friend of Rumayans who runs all the golf. And you you meet uh, Al Sorer at an event. Uh, how does that introduction go? And uh, what, what kind of ensued over the next several hours? <laughs> so I, I, this was in li- what they called Live Boston, uh, which is actually in a town called Bolton, which is closer to Worcester. Golf, you're mostly, at least early in the week, you're just kind of standing around, maybe trying to do some interviews. Uh, but during the practice rounds, it's not that much to do. I, I had become friendly with a guy named Frank McNamara, who was a member there. He's a former U.S. attorney for Massachusetts, appointed by or during the Reagan era. And just, the, you know, kind of one of those guys who's very chatty, very voluble, carried a clipboard around so he could kind of get in where he wanted and look official, uh, even if he wasn't supposed to be there. And uh, before around, uh, I think this is the second round, must have been on Saturday, there were a group of us hanging around just just before they were going to tee off on the first hole. We were following that first group. Frank says, oh, you know, there's a guy over there I want, want to introduce to all you guys. Um, and he brings uh, this man over. And the man I recognized is, is Majid El-Sorer, um, who I, I'd, I'd been wanting to talk to him or Rumayan. And he he brings uh, Majid over and Majid introduces himself and starts joking and says, yeah, I'm the guy that Phil called a scary motherfucker. And that was basically his intro- introduction to us. Um, and we just started walking up, rocking around the whole a course together. Um, I explained who I was and I was with The New Yorker. And he said, oh, I, you know, I mentioned he reads The New Yorker. He's a big fan of the magazine. I, I mentioned that I was kind of skeptical of the media narrative, the, the sports watching narrative at least as it had been portrayed as, you know, this vehicle to launder the reputation of MBS specifically. He was receptive to that. And I said, you know, I'd love to talk to you more about the, about live, about the vision for it, um, about what you guys are doing. And so we just ended up walking around the course for, for a couple hours. Um, we went up to one of the private suites above the 18th hole where, where he had kind of camped out and we just, we ended up talking for a while. 
and uh, we'll get to kind of what happens after uh, you know this this past week. But he he unprompted says to you, uh, "We don't kill gays." I'll just tell you that. Uh, so basically, implying, I guess, what's your reaction to that when when somebody says this to you? Is there any doubt that any of this is on the record uh, as well? I'll ask that as we before we get to this next part. No, he. We, we. I had introduced myself as a reporter. I was a credentialed reporter at his golf tournament, um, right. and I told him oh, I was writing a, a piece. And, and then we had discussed at points. You know, it, it, we had explicitly said, you know, this is on the record. I had a recorder out. I had a notepad out. Uh, I don't think there should have been any confusion. I, I think he was bothered by some of the press coverage. You know, I think he was hurt a little bit by by being seen. He doesn't view himself as a scary motherfucker. And I have to say, you know, if walking around the course with him, he does seem like a, a pleasant guy. He saw a guy fall down, an older guy kind of fell down. He looked a little woozy and matches went over and helped him get a golf cart. Um, didn't introduce himself. You know, wasn't you know, I this I, I run this thing. Uh, it was just, you know, he was there with his his daughter for a little while, held the rope for people. You know, I, I think it was trying to show that, you know, I'm a decent guy. So I think he was hurt by some of the, some of this. And that's why I think he mentioned the, you know, we don't kill gays. He views himself as a relatively tolerant person and maybe may true. Um, I think there are definitely criticisms one could make of Saudi Arabia's treatment of gay people, of women. But he, I think he, he personally seemed a little bit hurt and a little bit defensive uh, toward some of that. One of people don't remember that that's in reference to what Phil had said to Alan Chipnook in the uh, the interview that kind of shook up the golf world in February that they, they killed people for being gay in Saudi Arabia. And that's what you know, they're scary motherfuckers. Why would I want to be in business with them? But so then, you know, your article comes out and there's a statement that was released uh, this past week from uh, from Majid that said, I had a casual conversation with a New York New Yorker reporter at Liv's Boston event a few weeks ago, during which I expressed my frustration and the at the unfortunate blackballing of Liv Golf. For, uh, live golf players by the PGA Tour. When it comes to the majors, tournaments that stand out about history, heritage, true competition, and honor, the story wrongfully expressed and misrepresented my views. The majors are indeed the best platform where live golfers and other tour players can compete despite the PGA Tour's suspension of our players. As a live golf board member and managing director, I am here to accomplish our live golf investment chairman and the board of directors, uh, board strategic direction by building a team, growing the game, and defending player rights. That is my only interest. And this is in response to the part in your article that says, for now, the majors are siding with the tour, and I don't know why. If the majors decide not to have our players play, I will celebrate. I will create my own majors for my players. Uh, honestly, I think all the tours are being run by guys who don't understand business. So it seems to me, hey, well, what's, what's your reaction when that happens, right? I mean, it, I, I think it, to me, it's like it's obfuscation. It's, it's trying to confuse listeners and viewers as to the, the, quote, biased media in there. And what's your reaction as a journalist to, to having your work kind of discredited like that? It's kind of the cost of doing business. Uh, it, it's it's not, not the craziest walk back uh, I've ever seen or been involved with. It, this happens. People say things and then maybe they regret saying them. And they either try to apologize or try to walk it back in some ways. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't offend me personally. I, di I didn't represent really anything that he said. I just. I just quoted him. And, and you know, sometimes a journalist gives lots of context on something or gives an opinion on something, depending on what kind of piece it is. This. I just. You know, the context was uh, the majors. There's questions on how many live golfers are going to qualify for the majors or whether they're going to be allowed to play in the majors. And then I just. I just quoted him. Um, so there really wasn't much 
representation going on other than just giving his own words. I do think the general trend is troubling. Uh, you know, you see Phil at, at, at talk about, you know, I never gave an interview to Alan Shipnuck. Uh, and it kind of starts to cross into these kind of Orwellian, you know, denying what everyone has seen or read with their own eyes. But this, this, I think this statement personally was, I, you know, it wasn't, wasn't the worst uh, that I've seen. I had not heard this and I can think of no better representation for how this whole thing than what I learned in your piece that the, uh, the Saudis asked about renting Augusta Nationals clubhouse to host a meet and greet for top golfers, which to anyone in the golf world, you and literally anyone would know you cannot do that. Like that is the Augusta national is not for sale. Their clubhouse is not for sale. Well, I, I think it's, it, it represents to me a, a few different things. I, I think one, the fact that Al Soror and, and Rumayan are, are huge, huge golf fans. And I think this shows a, that they, really just wanted to meet these top golfers because I think it was probably a, a thrill for them. I'm speculating here, but I imagine it was, it would have been a thrill and, and B that they entered this. They're no longer, but they entered this as kind of novices to the American golf scene. Um, I think even a casual observer of golf who watches the masters every year would probably be able to tell you, uh, you, you can't do that. Uh, that's, that's not a thing that you could really, really even ask. Um, or, or think about. Um, I, I think the other thing it shows you is is this mindset that they have. They have tons and tons of money, um, and this is also a, a monarchy. Um, it, it's it's a, a thing in which uh, if, if MBS says he wants something, people are going to get it for him because he is he is the crown prince. Um, and I, I think the desire. Uh, to host this meet and greet it shows, I think, the idea that that they have that with enough money, anything is for sale. Um, and I think the miscalculation here was that this is the Masters, you know, as much money as as the Saudis have, uh, the Masters, it, it, you know, they they have collectively more. This is this is the thing that the very richest and most powerful people in the country do because they they have, you know. The, they've gotten bored with all their other riches and power and they've created this thing that is, uh, that is fun. They, they, you know, this, they're not going to sell it. This is kind of priceless for them. Uh, I think that was the miscalculation, but, but I think the idea was, you know, if we pay, you know, if we, if we, pay, if we offer $10 billion, uh, for this, which they wouldn't do, but is the, as uh, is Augusta national going to say no? Uh, I, I think that's the mindset they're they're approaching it with. He also claims that he went to Jay Monahan and said they have over a billion dollars. They want to invest in the tour and got no response. The tour denied that claim. It, what, what is your take on? Did something like this actually happen? It's, it's, you know, Magic says one thing. Uh, the tour says another. Um, I, I know that uh, the Saudis and, and Magic had been looking to invest in professional golf um, in some big way. Um, one of them uh was the, the more well-known one was with the european tour they were trying to invest in the european tour and the pga ultimately kind of was was trying to do that also and and ultimately won out and now, now they have the partnership with the european tour i don't know if it would have went down as magic describes as i have one billion dollars would you like it uh, I think that there were probably some more nuanced discussions. And, and I think maybe it was more that they had this pot of money 
and they were looking to partner with the PGA Tour in some way. Um, but right now we kind of have these two competing words. You know, is it, you know, is it as Magic describes, is the, the tour says they were never approached with the offer at all. Um, so, you know, it's kind of, he said, he said. Yeah, that's where it's kind of seems a bit working backwards to me in terms of, you know, they, they feel left out of the ecosystem right now and a little bit of, uh, trying to position themselves as saying like, hey, we tried to play in your ecosystem and you didn't want it, which I have a feeling, yeah, there was either way more strings attached to that billion dollars that they just wanted to be so benevolent with and and, and, and donate to the game of golf and uh, and what they're actually trying to do with a lot of that money, which, yeah, it seems to be like that, that Venn diagram doesn't seem like a very big overlap. Yeah, and it's it's difficult. You know, Live is a for-profit venture. The PGA Tour is 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 nonprofit. It's it's difficult to incorporate these things within a nonprofit and have one person making money off. I I, I am not a tax attorney, um, but I think that there are a lot of complications there. It's not as easy as saying, "Hey, let's have a little for-profit wing of the tour." Uh, there's a lot of things that would need to be ironed out. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's you know even really feasible at all. One part in this article that kind of, I don't want to say haunted me, it's a little dramatic, I think, a little bit, but uh, Al Soror said uh, in reference to the players voting to wear shorts, uh, which he was not a fan of, that uh, he, his line is, democracy's okay sometimes. And it's just a reminder as to what these guys have signed up for and that they are working for uh, undemocratic uh, leaders of a, a foreign monarchy. I, yeah, I don't know if I have a question related to that other than you, you found that that line worthy of including in the article. Did you find it as significant as I did? I, I found it, uh, it and I could see it going both ways. And uh, I think I found it more charming than anything. Uh, I, I found it, uh, you know, a little bit of self-awareness. You know, these are different political systems. Uh, you know, they are not a democracy. Um, these, this value that like we hold as kind of sacred and self-evidently amazing is just not not how the Saudi political system operates. Uh, but and I think he's aware. You know, he also he lives in America, and I think he's aware of that. I think this was yeah, it se seemed to me more of a joke. But I could see people kind of viewing it as as uh, uh, <laughs> threatening in a way, or, or or vaguely you know unsettling. Uh, the, the interesting thing to me was that the tour is operates as a democracy. Um, they they the players get votes, um, but it's organized in a way, or at least until very recently, until until the Rory and Tiger changes, uh, organized so that the players were always the minority of votes on the board. Um, so the complaints that you hear on the tour, which is this kind of messy democracy, or messy quasi democracy at least, is that. Uh, you know, their voices aren't heard and they're being dictated to by Monaghan and, and, and the, the tour board. Uh, and the thing that you'd hear on live actually is that like their voices are heard. And I think it's because there are a smaller number of them uh, and a smaller number of like real stars. Um, so so and, and live is actively trying to court them. Um, so their opinions are are taken and acted on much more quickly. Uh, but it was interesting, like you get these complaints on the tour where you know we don't really have a voice and then uh on live uh maybe uh, counterintuitively uh all the guys are like yeah this is great uh, they listen to us they they ask our opinion all the time uh so that just that amused me a little bit so that, that part i uh that that's where i think the players it's a little bit of revisionist history for the players i don't doubt that that is being that is a, a talking point being trumpeted but the uh, I've not heard of situations where the players, like the four representation, the, the, the four members that they have on the board, if they want something, it gets done. They don't get outvoted by the other five necessarily, you know, shot down right away. And 
I have made the point that I think the players have been a bit lax in their organization of getting specific stuff pushed through. It took being pushed to the brink before they said, actually realized the power that they do have, right? And they've maybe deferred too much to the executives that have, and they just, they don't, they don't see each other. They don't, they're not in the same room very often. Like Monaghan emphasized how, you know, historical it was to get that many top players that got in the room in Delaware all together at once because these things do not happen. These guys, only play maybe five, six events a year where they're all in the same uh, field together, and those are the biggest tournaments, and they don't want to sit down and meet uh, on, a, on a regular basis. So it's another aspect of this that I find very, very uh, interesting is that fallout from this is players realizing how much power within the tour they actually do have. Yeah, it's it's their tour at the end of the day. They yeah. set it up, and uh, even when they don't have, even when they didn't have the board votes, if the top players, you know, if Tiger Woods at any point in the last 20 years said, I want this thing or else I'm going to leave. Uh, what is the tour going to say? You know, are they going to say no? Uh, right. Of course not. And who is the tour? Yeah. Who is the tour in yeah. quotes, in air quotes, right? It is you yeah, guys it who is. are the tour. It is. Davis Love described this to me. There's a small group of guys who are invested in, you know, board votes and, and going over financials and all that. There's a, a small group of people who are always complaining. Uh, he put... Phil Mickelson in that. And I don't think anyone would dispute that. Uh, they're going to complain no matter what. And then there's just this vast middle group who don't really care and they just want to play golf. And that's all well and good. But this is your tour. I mean, this is one of the advantages and the downsides of not having owners. You know, you you get to decide how things are run and you get to keep a majority of the money. But that also means you have to, you know, you have to do a little bit of the work. But most people don't want it. Most people, you know, you're a golfer. You don't think of yourself as, I have to look at financial statements and convert all those things. It's not the it's not what they want to do. The uh, I, I mentioned the name Trump at the beginning of the article, and I'm proud we went. I've gone 35 minutes here without without bringing that back up. But you uh, you you wait. You went to a live event at Trump Bedminster. Uh, what what's you know, took a couple questions with that. Are you nervous to get, you know, credentialed as a, as a journalist wading into the Saudi Arabian world? Are you nervous to report on Saudi Arabia at all? And what's what's kind of like that process like for you to go and, and say, all right, here I'm going to go credentialed and uh, get re- report on a, a live golf event? I, I, I wasn't and haven't been concerned at all. There was no trepidation or hesitation or concern we we have reporters who like actually go to war zones and and uh deal with dangerous people and uh you know have to navigate terrorism or or governments that might want them dead uh so i i guess maybe for that perspective you know this is this is just golf it's not that important to anyone so the question of, of getting credentialed at the trump event i i they actually didn't credential me for that one they credentialed me for boston later um, but I, to my surprise, I was, I was, my credential request for Trump, uh, the Trump tournament was denied. So they ended up giving me a ticket, which I think saved me like $3 because the tickets were reselling for a dollar on StubHub, uh, plus fees. So I probably saved some fees on top of that. So I was just wandering around the course, just like anyone else, you know, I had my notepad out and my, my recorder out, but, uh, I was just wandering around. I, I think I, I've been gratified that most of the golf people seem to have thought that I got like the golf scene the golf world captured pretty accurately uh if there's been any complaints about the piece other than from magic uh it's it's been uh, there's too much trump i i'm like anyone of trump fatigue and would rather not talk about it but you go to trump bedminster and the experience was like being at a trump rally people cared more about 
Trump. Yeah, why did you write about Trump at uh, a live event at <laughs> Trump Bedminster with Trump uh, leading it, leading cheers of the 16th tee? What made you want to write about Trump? Why did you decide to do that? Yeah, yeah, and that's like you know, uh, why'd you go to the to the uh, NASCAR race and write about NASCAR? You know, it's it was bizarre in that like people just seemed to like golf seemed to be like the sideshow. You know, it's like Trump sometimes will have like a you know a some weird singing act come and, and sing at one of his rallies. And that's kind of what the golf was in a way. Uh, it was, you know, people would flock to the 16th tee box, which is where the clubhouse was and just stare at him and stare at Tucker Carlson or Marjorie Taylor green. Uh, and, you know, do, do you know, chant things as one does at a rally. Uh, and then there'd be some golf coming through and they, Oh, that's not that, isn't that neat. So the, the, it was a weird, it was a weird experience. And, and, you know, all the gear, it's not like people have like, you know, there's a merch tent now at live events, but it's not like people have like crushers hats on uh, everywhere. It was like, you know, it's all Trump hats. And, and everyone was, you know, even on the buses over from the parking lot, it was all, you know, kind of bros talking about AOC and how much they hate her and, and you know, making Hillary jokes and stuff like that. Uh, it was, it was definitely like a, a particular scene. Uh, and it, the scene was, <laughs> was Trump rally. And that's where I would love to clarify for our audience. Like I, this is definitely not why I got into golf for either side to turn this into a political rally is definitely not what interests me about golf. And I, I do have not enjoyed that aspect of golf being hijacked, uh, you know, in any direction for, you know, bringing like, it's not the journalists that are bringing politics into this, right? It is very clearly golf has become a pawn in a global scheme, uh, really here and being used in this culture war, like, like, like you mentioned, and you have to try to highlight that in some way and tell that story, even if it's going to be polarizing to, to a lot of people. And it's, I mean, you touch on it too, about how, you know, the PGA tour versus live is not Republicans versus Democrats. It is, it's more like, you know, warring factions on, uh, within their own political party, if you will. Uh, and, and yeah, how, do, how is that part of the story in, in your mind? It was really fascinating to me. Because I, I didn't coming into this know how the the lines broke down. I knew that Liv had had used Trump for his courses and kind of had this alliance with him in some ways. Um, but I didn't know if the golfers themselves were, you know, were 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 leaned more toward Trump. And I think you know th this is to speak very very broadly. Um, but it did break down where if affinity for Trump helped explain like who went to live. Um, so, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who like Trump still on the tour. Um, but I, it, it was the way one manager broke it down for me was that guys who, who grew up kind of more working class, uh, didn't have country clubs growing up. Uh, they live appealed to them because it's, it's, this, you know, guaranteed money. And I think when you grow up poor or grow up without as much, um, you're saying, I'm going to, you know, I don't know how, how often these opportunities come. I'm, I'm going to get my money and secure my, my future and future for my family right now. And the guys who grew up with more money, some people think of as like the, the Mitt Romney kind of wing of the Republican party. They claim these high principles. So, you know, there's some things more important than money. We have this tour, which we love and, and uh, you know, prestige, prestige and, and honor that's important. Um, but it's easier to say that when you've grew up more comfortable. So I think it's kind of like in a lot of ways, it's like the mainline Republicans who are like, okay with, with, with Trumpism versus, you know, the actual like full on Trumpers. And there are exceptions, obviously, on, on both sides. There are there are people on on live who I'm sure uh, don't like Trump. 
Uh, I doubt there are many Democratic voters on, on either side, uh, but I think there, there are probably some some crossover between the different Republican factions. I think the people that went to live love money more than they care that much about, about the Trump. I don't think that's a deciding factor really for them. I think it's a tolerance to it, right? Some people don't uh, want to be associated with it because it honestly, though, like the reason for that being they may consider it damaging to their overall brand and marketability, which also ties back to money, right? It's that's where it's just like, you keep digging on all these things and man, it just comes back to money in so many different ways. And it's super interesting to try to navigate and figure out. And like, man, a lot of times I just want to see who wins the majors and make jokes about it along the way. Yeah. I don't think anyone went to live because, you know, Trump's there and I like Trump. I, I think it's just like kind of a, a way of viewing the world at the end of the day. It's, you know, where am I going to make the most money? Basically, you know, at the edges, it's like, you know, where do I want to play? What am I most comfortable with? And there are some people that like really like the tour and wouldn't leave for a lot of money. Um, but Rory, for example, it's not like Rory's giving up a ton of money. Rory, if he left, would, would probably take a huge hit from his sponsors. And I don't know if that I don't I don't think that's his maybe primary focus. One of them. But, you know, a lot of these guys are, you know, making they're making a business calculation. That's where it's the the hardest part for me has been the dudes that have already made hundreds of millions of dollars leaving for more hundreds of millions. That's where it's just been hard to to you know to blend together. Some of the dudes that I don't know take Hudson Swafford who has probably made over ten million dollars from this thing right now. Like that's not what his income has been like for his whole. He doesn't. He's not sitting on a hundred million dollars to my knowledge, and then leaving for more greed. It's you know the Phils, the the DJs, those guys have been the ones that have been really hard to stomach because, like you said, there's a certain amount of these guys that have have all this money. Like that, you know, what, what's a hundred, what's 300 million more of Rory? He even has said that out loud. Like I use, ever since I've gotten especially rich, I use the same four rooms in my house. Like it's just not going to change my life that much. And that's, what's been uh tough to kind of watch unfold, but you don't buy that DJ needs to provide for his family. I'm not going to buy that one. I think he's probably pretty set being the third highest earner in PJ tour history. Plus all and he's planning for a really, really big family. <laughs> couple other things I, I had to ask about. You threw, you threw a nice line in there about a guy watching porn on his phone behind the 10th screen at Bedminster. <laughs> Tell me about that. So I'm talking to this guy, and he's trying to show me something on his phone, which he had just been on as I approached him. There were not a lot of people around the 10th green. Early in the week, there were just not a lot of people on the course. So it's not like you're elbow to elbow, like you might be in another gallery. So there's this guy just standing watching something on his phone as I walk up to him. He puts his phone away as I walked up to him and we start talking and he's trying to show me something on his phone and he unlocks it. And it's just, I could see what he was watching before. And it was, it was port, uh, which that was a first for me. I'd never encountered that at really any sporting event. Uh, so that was, it was interesting. Uh, one thing that kind of reading this kind of crystallized for me that I don't know if this can or will be lives undoing, but it seems like a, a lot of the, the, the main interested parties seem to have very different interests in combining on this. You know, the players want to earn more money. The Saudis want whatever they want out of it. Trump wants whatever he wants out of it. Norman wants revenge on the tour. You got to kind of dig into a lot of these different aspects. Do you see that having any potential for maybe pulling them apart into the future and how this all plays out? Yeah, it was. it's, you know, talking about how people choose one side or the other. It is mostly money. Uh, but there are all these like resentments that build up over years and years of playing with and against people. And I think a lot of that, that maybe wasn't the determining factor in a lot of this, but it helped and also helped fuel 
how pissed the sides are at each other. Tiger and Norman have had this long running. Uh, it's it's hard to tell how how much Tiger uh, actually cares about Norman. Uh, or maybe views him as like a little mosquito. And Norman seems to be really hurt by Tiger not giving him the deference he thinks he deserves. I don't know if the, I, I I think money is the great divider here and will ultimately be the great unifier. Uh, people will I think put aside their differences if it makes economic sense for them. Uh, someone maybe like Norman might have a, a more difficult time ingratiating himself back into the world of golf, but I don't know that he'd ever been very popular within the world of golf beforehand. Uh, so I, I, I don't I don't see this. Are, are you was your question more of will this rip apart live or rip apart the golf world generally? I think more live. I mean, it's, it, you know, as we get towards the end of this year, viewership numbers are dropping. They're not adding new players as of right now. I have no idea what's going to happen in this offseason. They're going to add a bunch of events for next year, and they're going to have a new wave of momentum in some capacity. But it seems like it's waning just a little bit. I think the U.S. events, I would consider a great success for them. I mean, they they seemed like they was really escalating. Each event kind of built on top of each other. There were some exciting moments uh, in the golf that I'm sure they were happy with. And yeah, Boston was pretty fun, actually. Yeah, Bangkok and 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 Jeddah were just kind of duds. It seemed like and just barely made a splash. And that's where it's just like you know they've been on this rise, rise, rise in so many different ways thanks to the money. And I just don't you know it doesn't. I don't get the sense that everyone's swimming in the same direction. I don't think Norman is long for this thing. I don't. Uh, I, and I, I, the next phase is just going to be very interesting when it's not all brand new and all signings. And here we got this guy and we got this guy and with this guy and the whole golf world's coming. I think this next wave is just going to be harder for them to pull people in. And I just wonder if, you know, then, then internally do players start getting, you know, having stripes with how things are run and, and, you know, not having viewers and not having the, the ownership value. And I, 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 I still just struggle to picture how all this is all going to play out. I think once players start to see an end potentially in sight, that's when it gets really interesting. If, if there is an end in sight, you know, like if, if, if Liv does take off on an upward trajectory and I think things need to change for that to happen, I think it's still possible. Um, then, you know, everyone's rich and happy. Um, I think if people see this collapsing, I think they might still be fine with the decision they made because they're going to have a lot of money. Uh, but then I think you'll start to see the calculation on the other end. You know, the thing that the PGA Tour is dealing with right now is like who's going to leave and when and you know, who's going to going to bring with them. Uh, you're going to have that at some point with Liv. There's going to be guys who are saying, all right, you know, I got my money. Liv seems to be collapsing if, you know, if that seems to be the case. And uh, then they're going to say, all right, when do I try to jump back and how? People might not want to be the first guy because the first guy is probably going to be made an example of, but then they might want to be the second guy. And I think there could be that same sort of suspicion and recrimination and, you know, chaos and lying that you saw with the tour uh, in reverse. Um, and also one of the one part of the live model that they plan to institute is this relegation. They think if if you're one of the poorer people playing on the you know, poor in terms of golf playing on 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 their tour, you're going to get relegated and, or maybe the teams will get relegated. Um, and some of these guys that made a lot of money, um, you know, if, if, if Phil maybe, maybe would have been in danger of relegation for the way he played this year. Uh, and are they going to do that? And then are people jealous that he's getting preferential treatment or is Phil like, you know, what the hell I'm now on the B team. Uh, a lot of the guys that they signed up are like big names that aren't, aren't that good anymore. And you could see, 
being, you know, in the lower half or at the bottom of the tour uh, in, in a few years? And do they, you know, do they resent the treatment that they're getting if they're relegated? Uh, they're, right now, they're in kind of the honeymoon phase. Zach, we greatly appreciate you helping us uh, cover this from a different aspect. We've tried to cover it from all different possible ones. We appreciate somebody from outside of what some people call our echo chamber, which I would disagree with, but uh, outside of you know the people we normally talk uh, talk off with to to kind of shine a different angle on this. And greatly appreciate your reporting and uh, making making golf feel kind of important in the, in the grand scheme of things as well, because I know there's uh, uh, you know a lot going on in the world. So thanks for spending some time with us. I greatly appreciate it, and uh, hope we catch up in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. That's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything.